This podcast is made possible in part by patrons like you. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash binge movies. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. What are you doing? Mm, I'm sitting here jacking my... I want management on the fucking phone now! There's no store, dude! I'm fucking pissed! You're gonna die in there! All of you! You are gonna die! Hello? Who's calling? Can, can you speak a little louder, please? This is Saturday, isn't it? Here, here I was thinking... together here in this podcast i like to believe that i've developed a certain level of trust a certain level of confidence a certain level dare i say respect with the binge lords out there a worldwide audience a worldwide following that if i could so humbly admit dwarfs our social media following i like to get those numbers closer to alignment for a variety of reasons mostly i just want to hear more from you the good binge lords out there. Life is nothing if not dualities. You have a listen to podcast that ranks all around the world and so few Twitter followers. That's a duality. It's a tension that I have to live in. I'm a respected, some say film critic. I say movie fan. On the internet, giving my opinions about movies. I'm respected. I'm liked, I'm appreciated by some, maybe a few, maybe one or two deranged individuals. I am beloved. But God has his ways of keeping us humble, ladies and gentlemen. And my humility is forever encouraged by coming into the shop, the video store here in sunny tropical Akron, Ohio on K Fabian Way, firing up the voicemail and finding one breathy pervert after another leaving me masturbatory messages of self-gratification via one-handed flagellation. When I'm not vacuuming carpets and putting down deodorizer and reorganizing Blu-rays and deleting perverted messages, I'm doing a podcast. I'm reaching out to you to try to connect with the good people. See, these customers here they may not respect me. They may not even like me. But I've got supporters around the world, supporters who go to our online store, bingemovies.threadless.com, for brand new merch. Right now, the bestseller is the last movie standing t-shirt. It's all about the game, ladies and gentlemen, and how you play it. Go right now. Go to the online store and get you a last movie standing t-shirt before they're gone. Get them extra soft save. The chafe. If you know what I mean. I'm not just here to sell you merchandise. I'm also here to sell you experiences. I'm also here to tell you about 
a great event that we have coming up, something that is not going to be recorded. It will never be archived. It's not going in a secret vault somewhere to be released during the, the end times or after the end times. No, it's a one-and-done experience where you get to watch a movie with Jason from Binge Movies. We will watch a film together. It is a Ted Pryor, David Pryor classic, and we at Binge Movies proudly present to you the very first Binge Movies Presents... Deadly Prey, 1987. It is a movie that has to be seen. If you like greasy, meaty men slapping meat, become an assistant manager, level, patron, or above, and join us for a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It may be quick, maybe disastrous, maybe embarrassing, maybe fumbling, but you can only have one one-time experience. Speaking of love, speaking of support, speaking of someone who always puts their their heart and soul behind this show, Binge Movies, one of our very own clerks, one of the few people who I feel has love or respect. But I'm going to be honest with you, I question the love. I question the respect. Why do I question it? Because not only is this person a sponsor of a great many episodes of this show, not only a patron. Not only are they someone who has supported the show and bought multiple iterations of different t-shirts in extra buttery fabrics at a higher expense, a higher expense, spending their own hard-earned ducats. That's a lot of support for just a little podcast. And then I get confused because this person sends me a request to do a sponsored episode on movies that I'm not even sure are real films. I almost feel as if this person is going out, recording them, th them these, these movies themselves, and then somehow via a time machine, getting them released in the past so they appear to be legitimate films. I I'm talking about, I don't even know if it's a triumphant return, but it's a return of some sort, a return of a sponsored episode from the guy who sponsored Flight of Dragons. We're going to talk about two movies in this episode you've heard of. We're going to start with Pump Up the Volume. Then we're going to go up to Empire Records. And after that, I think this guy made all these movies himself. I think Ben's Lord Dan is Alan Moyle. It's a time loop. It's a flat circle. And I think it might be a troll job. So when you feel like you might just be trolled, but you're not quite sure because the person seems lovely. You reach out to somebody who can help you. I reached out to my good friend in the movie podcast space, a film critic from Boston. Yeah, that's right. Boston Film Critics Association. Got to get that right. Of course, I reached out to Megan Kearns. We joined that conversation already in progress. He sponsors these. He Still to this day, he says that I'm like his second or third favorite podcast. Who's his favorite? I need to know. Is it possible for a listener to abuse a host of a podcast? I think I'm in a cycle of sure. abuse. He woos me in with the money. <laughs> and he beats me with a sack of oranges <laughs> with the movies. And then I, I don't have any marks because he used the oranges. And I'm like, this guy's beating the shit out of me. And nobody's like, well, I gave you money. This analogy has gone off the rails. <laughs> I Listen. My, Which I think is possibly appropriate for this episode. The sponsored episodes, <laughs> I always say, pin me, pay me. Do you know what that means, Megan? 
I mean, I can put it together. I can Pin me, it. pay me, right? <laughs> it's a phrase that comes from old school wrestling. Uh, I should have known. And there were guys, so in the old school territory days, <laughs> yep, there were guys yep. called jobbers or curtain jerkers, and their job was just to go out and get the shit kicked out of them to make whoever the star was look good. They were a fluffer. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, and their their whole attitude was just pin me, pay me. I don't care. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna be a star. I'm not gonna be special. No one's ever gonna give a shit about me. If you give me the money, I'll take the loss. I don't care. So All that right. was my philosophy about sponsor episodes. I never should have put that out into the universe. <laughs> that's like you a sex. That's like a sex worker putting it in their ad. You can bite me, you can kick me, you can punch me, you can cut me, you can burn me. I don't care as long as I get the money. I never should have done it. And now look at my life. Now I am the (laughs) male sex worker of the podcast space, metaphorically and maybe literally speaking. And I will do anything for money. I get down on my knees and I get down and I just, I'll do anything for money. (laughs) Even torture yourself with shitty movies. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of money, we're going to be doing something called a price check challenge. These are special episodes that we do where we don't just give a score one out of 10. We assign a dollar value to get these DVDs and Blu-ray copies. And I'm guessing most of these have not found their way to Blu-ray, but (laughs) Blu-ray copies (laughs) off the shelf, out of the store and out of our life forever. So we will be, uh, Megan and I, We'll be giving a, a dollar values to these movies as we go along, saying what we think they're worth. <laughs> and then uh, at the end, Megan will probably have to do some quick accounting, but we'll do an average. So uh, Dr. Alan Moyle, uh, I think he's a doctor, doctor of directing. <laughs> 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 uh, he will. He's made 13, uh, he's directed 13 things, one of which was a TV series. So 12 motion pictures. And uh, we're gonna we're we've watched about five of them, so we're just gonna yeah. apply an average to his entire career. And I really think his life. I think we're <laughs> gonna assign a dollar value to the life of Alan Moyle, Canada's French, Canada's Denny Villeneuve. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> He's the Denny Villeneuve of Denny Villeneuve's. He wishes, <laughs> or maybe he doesn't. I don't know. <laughs> Let's start with a Stone Cold classic for a certain generation, Gen yes. Xers. Now, as a very brittle geriatric millennial, I don't know anything <laughs> about Gen Xers except for what I've seen on the real world. Everything I know about Gen Xers, I, I learned from the real world. Wait, which real world? All of them. Oh, all of them. Okay. Yeah, all of them up to a certain point. Got it. Uh, basically, the seasons where they were actually required to like get jobs. Remember? Yes. Yeah. They were like yep, they I were remember. just they were just people living in a house, and they weren't they, yep. it, they weren't like fueling them with alcohol, and you know, right? Yeah. It wasn't like the Real Housewives. Yes, correct. Yeah. <laughs> or Jersey Shore. We're, we're, Although Jersey Shore, they had to get jobs too. But yes, they had yeah. to get jobs. They had to hang out together. Yeah. Yes. We're talking yes. about J- J- John the Virgin, the cowboy wannabe <laughs> evangelical <laughs> Garth Brooks. Yes, we're talking about yes. Tammy. We're talking yep. about Pedro. Oh, we're talking about yep, Pedro, Pedro and Puck. And no, yeah, no, let's not talk about him. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yes, yeah. you're talking. Yeah, you're talking San Francisco, San Diego, I believe in New York. Yeah, Seattle. All Seattle. Yeah. Yep. Remember? Did you watch the days. Seattle episode or season? Like 
I think so. I mean, it's been so long. Okay, I think there was a <laughs> I woman. Think I watched many of them. I think there was a woman on there. Maybe her name was Irene or something like that. She had Lyme disease. Do you remember this? And she left no. the show early because she really didn't oh. like her experience. And then there was. I an do remember a- somebody leaving early. African American yes. gentleman by the name of Stephen, who, uh, as far as I know, was a straight man, but had effeminate qualities to him. And uh, she, this white woman. Remember, she's at the taxi cab, and she goes, Steve, and nobody likes you because you're a homosexual, Steve. And, she, oh God, and then he slapped her in the face. You know, I loved everybody at gifts. And um, I want to leave you one, too. Um, you're right, because um, a marriage between you and I would never work out. You know that. Because <laughs> you're homosexual, Steven. Whoa! You remember this? No, I blocked this out. And they were gonna if ev- I saw it, I blocked this out. They were going to evict Stephen, but then... She, be- <gasps> Wait a minute! Now I remember. Yes, 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 yes. Because she yes, was already off yes. the show, they were like, well, yeah. actually, she said some pretty homophobic things to him. Yes. Out of nowhere, so it's probably better if she's gone. So I think what I'm driving at here is, as a white woman, <laughs> there's a lot of problematic white women. We've talked about this repeatedly, you and I, on the show. Yes. Yes, because I think all pro- I think all white people are problematic, <laughs> and I also think white women are also highly problematic. And it just, I, it's time for that you go get your comeuppance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, you're putting me in a difficult position because I'm not straight and I'm a white woman. So like, you know, but yeah, no, I don't. So think who, are gonna ever the who are you going to side with? Who are you going to side with? Side with here, neither of them. Neither of them. You're side with a black man who struck a person, or (laughs) the homophobic white woman with Lyme disease. I'm never siding with the homophobic white person. (laughs) But I also do not think striking someone, especially striking a woman, is the answer either. (laughs) I don't think. Here's the other thing. Get them both out. Stephen was never homosexual. That she she that was just a way of getting under her skin, his skin, basically. Sure. Yeah, to make him uncomfortable. Sure, but that's the thing. I mean, that's a dicey thing because let's break it down, called... Megan. Let's go. <laughs> being called a gay person, I mean, of course, she meant it as a slur. Yes. She meant it homophobically, but being called a gay person, if you're not, should not be an insult. It should not yes. be a dig on your masculinity or on your femininity or on anything about you. So, yeah. So the whole situation is fucked up. I would say get them both out. Both of them. As a mostly straight guy, I wouldn't be. Oh, I'm here for the gender, flu- <laughs> the sexual and gender fluidity. I like it. Well, I, I, I've told you before, I really would like to at later in my life cosplay as B. Arthur. <laughs> I thought you were going to say because of your Omar Sharif love. But oh, yes, I do well. know you want to cosplay as B. Arthur, too. I'm a, look, meaty men slapping meat. Who isn't here for it? I, I lesbians. But but. Everybody else, we you love to see it. You love to see yeah. sweaty, greasy, meaty men slapping their meats <laughs> up against each other. <laughs> we do? Okay. <laughs> you might be thinking, man, they haven't even gotten into any of these movies yet. And you'll find out why very quickly. <laughs> I was like, this might be the livelier part of the conversation. <laughs> well, let's start. Yes, let's talk about. Oh, I was gonna say, let's talk about the B. Arthur cosplay. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let, you we know what? There's time. a couple movies that I don't have very much to say on, so we'll come back to B. Arthur later. Oh, okay. so let's start I with the movie. That. I do think that we're gonna have some things to talk about. Fair enough. Oh yes. 
We're gonna oh, yeah. we're gonna have some things to talk about. Uh, yes. and you might be listening to this podcast and thinking, man, we're pushing boundaries. You've got a uh, <laughs> you know queer woman and a white guy who wants to be B. Arthur, and they're <laughs> they're saying inappropriate things, and they're you know they're 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 just doing all this sort of stuff. And we didn't invent this format. Alan Moyle and Christian Slater invented this format 31 years ago with a little movie the internet likes to call and the company that made it likes to call Pump Up the Volume, which currently has an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Guess who? You sit next to him all year. You out there? You listening? And never notice him. You can almost taste it, the rankness in the air. He's the guy who lights up the night. He's got a pirate radio station. They say that I am deluged. Oh, yeah. Demented. Hallelujah. Well, guess what I say? Christian Slater. Get crazy! Pump up the volume. Rated R. Preview Sunday, August 19th. Opens August 22nd. Pump up the volume was directed by Alan Moyle. It was written by Alan Moyle, who was 40 three at the time that he wrote this movie which is staggering to me because this is for some people like one of maybe a, a, a handful or half dozen of like gen x movies it's like this maybe like slc punk or reality bites or some of these other movies that get thrown there or even empire records which we'll get to so there's like you know half dozen half dozen like Gen X movies, Clerks, whatever, they kind of get bandied about. Pump up the volume is routinely in that rotation. And it was written by a boomer. And we're going to get into whether or not we think he captured the voice of, I guess, your generation. Uh, it in, is mine. In this film. <laughs> uh, it is the triumphal return of Christian Slater, who was last seen in Prince of Thieves. Uh, it is the triumphal return of Samantha Mathis. Last scene <laughs> in Super Mario Brothers, the movie. Who You know that she is now the vice president of SAG-AFTRA for actors? I didn't, but that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise you? No. It's Samantha Mathis who like just disappeared off the face of the earth, has been working no. behind the scenes as a... She did the... <laughs> I, I forever I thought she was the woman in the thirteenth floor, which is the movie no one's ever seen. You ever see that one? That's Gretchen Maul. That's Gretchen Maul. Yeah, that's not. That's her. not her. Look no, at the cover. No, Look at the cover Samantha. of that movie with Craig Bierko and tell me that's not Samantha Mathis. And then tell yeah, me it does look like her. if you saw Samantha Mathis, you'd be like, oh yeah, she's the vice president of SAG. You're like what? Yes, because she's been acting like since she was 19 and she's been in a ton of roles, film and TV. So, yeah, I'm not surprised. Hollywood's a lie, Megan. Hollywood's a lie. <laughs> I never said otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> like, who? who? <laughs> uh, the movie was released August 22nd, 1990. Uh, oh, oh, you know, it's also the triumphant return of Lynn Shay. This is a New Line movie. And Bob Shea would put Lynn Shea into everything. <laughs> so she makes an appearance. She almost always plays, you know, the same character at this stage in her career. Now she's got her own horror franchise and whatever. So but, uh, this thing made $11.5 million. The budget's not available. Now, Megan, I have a theory here I want to get into before we get to our synopsis. Ooh. It's a longstanding theory. I think Christopher Nolan and his writing partners watch a lot of B-movies. Mm-hmm. And then they steal from those B-movies 
And then they they then make B movies that they trick people into thinking that they're A triple A movies. I think that's what okay. Christopher Nolan does. And I think okay. there is a line in this movie about how ideas are like viruses. And yes. once they're planted, they spread. And it is almost yes. word for word what Leonardo DiCaprio says in Inception. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think that Christopher Nolan or his brother or whoever the fuck wrote Inception, can't remember that off the top of my head. I think that they knowingly or unknowingly watched a shit ton of movies from a certain era. Mm-hmm. And then I think they just regurgitate that shit into their scripts. And then nobody notices that Inception is Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. Nobody <laughs> notices, but I notice because I've also watched a shit ton of movies. Yes, you have. Yeah. I don't, I, I think you're actually right, but I don't think that they're stealing. I think in their minds, they're paying homage to these films. You think, in, you think in Inception, he was like, I'm going to put a little pump into volume in here. Yeah, why not? <laughs> the, cre- the creator of Mr. Robot did. The creator of Mr. Robot was a huge fan of Pump Up the Volume yeah. and Christian Slater. Yeah. And that's why he cast him. And that's why, he, and he has Pump Up the Volume references throughout the show. So I don't think it's crazy at all. Great filmmakers are huge film nerds themselves mm. and are often fans of film history. So yeah, I would not be surprised. I think that's a great theory. And I actually think it's one that you're probably spot on with. So you're, the only difference is you wouldn't say that Christopher Nolan is a hack. Is that what you're saying? No, I don't think. Even the films I dislike of Christopher Nolan, and trust me, there are plenty I dislike. Such as? The, uh, Interstellar. Uh, no, thank you. Um, no. but yeah. And Inception, I'm not a huge fan of either, although the cinematography and the editing mm. are sublime. In that. But I'm a huge fan of Dunkirk. I love Dunkirk. I think it's incredible. So... I think he is technically, he's a technical master, Mm -hmm. but sometimes all of his ideas, he gets kind of lost in the weeds when it comes to the actual storytelling. So how does Bruce Wayne get back to Gotham city out of that pit? (laughs) That's a great question. That's a problematic film. And I don't mean problematic in the sense, the way we usually mean it, like, you know, racist or sexist. I mean, it's a problematic film logistics is it problematic megan because it stinks <laughs> and no one wants to admit that it stinks because it's the follow-up I mean, I of the dark night yeah i mean the nope. dark night is impeccable but yeah, yeah. i don't think nobody can nobody can great. come to terms with the fact that they made a stinker for the third movie because <laughs> it looks like the second movie but it stinks and no and nobody wants to be like yeah. the guy that made the dark knight followed up <laughs> with a terrible batman movie yeah, Christopher Nolan is really, I find, to be a very uneven filmmaker. It's it's really interesting looking looking at his oeuvre because it is very up and down. What was the down. one where he stole plot points from Phantasm and then where they <laughs> where they go through the uh, the the tuning forks and they go backwards oh. in time? Oh God! It came out during yeah. the pandemic and nobody saw it. And then he cried and he left Warner Brothers over it. Remember? <laughs> Remember when all those people, uh, yeah. remember when millions think, and millions and millions yeah. of people were dying I every day? I liked that film. I actually liked that film. <laughs> no, no, it was no. reminiscent. Hang on. Remember when millions and millions of people were <laughs> dying every him. day? Remember when there were mass graves outside of hospitals and Christopher <laughs> Nolan took the time to write a letter and be like, why won't you come see my movies? Oh, that's Tenet. I was thinking, yeah, there like we confusing. Go. I'm confusing Tenet and Reminiscence. And I'm like, wait, he didn't direct Reminiscence. No. That was Lisa Joy. That's his yes, sister That was Tenet. Yes, yeah. it is. Um, yeah, no, Tenet. Yeah, which is not yeah. a good movie either. No. 
by the way. I mean, listen, I don't think anybody should be guilting anyone to go back to the movies at any point in time, even now. But if you're going to, you better make a movie a fuck ton better than Tenet. If you're going to say, look, leave your loved one's corpse <laughs> in that refrigeration trailer at the edge of town. Oh, my God. <laughs> leave their corpse. They're not going oh. anywhere. They're oh. stacked five deep in the cooler. Your loved oh. one isn't going anywhere. They're frozen to your neighbor. They're frozen to your uncle. They're frozen to your cousin. <laughs> All your family's dead. Get to the theater and see Tenet. If that's like, you better make an A plus movie. You can't come right. with an A minus or a B plus no, or a no. B minus. You can't be like, this is one of your lesser works. No, this better be your right. magnum opus. If I'm gonna leave my dead dad in a in a uh, in a mass grave somewhere, <laughs> and <laughs> from COVID to come see your movie, it better be quality. You know, AMC theaters, but it had been would it had been better if they gave that thirty million dollars they gave Nicole Kidman to make that commercial to to pe to all the orphans from COVID. You think? Yes, yes. They should have given that money to anybody else. And listen, I love Nicole Kidman. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> but no, not to make that terrible commercial. Yeah, you're not alive unless you're in a movie theater. Apparently not. And it's like, well, most of my friends aren't alive because of COVID, not because they didn't go to the movie theater. Ooh. Oh. Too far? Uh, well, let's get to our synopsis for Pump Up the Volume. Mediocre white guy invents the first po first podcast. That's what it is, like right? Any, it's a podcast. Like any, it is, and like any good podcaster can't stop talking about his podcast. Yeah, yeah. But then when you meet him, when you meet him in real life, he's, he's very disappointing. Yeah. Yeah, he has no real personality or whatever, you know. Yeah, you meet him in real life. He's just a guy with glasses. Just go into his P.O. box, which is very easy to find. Apparently. Why? Okay. <clears throat> I more or less like this movie. I've seen it before. This one for a yeah. long time was really, really hard to track down because. Yes. Uh, yes. Up until just a couple of years ago or like a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Because the licensing, because the music, yep. because the, this had an incredible soundtrack and, and some mainstream bands and man, bands right before they broke big and bands that yep. never broke big. And, and uh, they just, they didn't have the rights to the music. And so uh, they had a couple of releases of it or occasionally show up, I think on Netflix. They had like temp music in or they yeah. do for TV shows that lose, lose their music rights. And the movie doesn't really work if it's just generic rock music in the background. It's very, no. very dependent upon, you know, the music he's playing because it goes into his podcaster monologues and all this other sort of stuff. <laughs> yes. So I don't know what did it. The rumor in innuendo is that um, uh, Bill Simmons from The Ringer is a big fan of this movie, and he did a podcast episode about it. Mm -hmm. And he's got a bunch of sway over at Time Warner, or he did with H with HBO folks. And they yep. eventually ended up buying New Line, so they had the rights to this movie. And he basically was like, put this on HBO Max and get the music rights. Mm -hmm. And they did. And so there it is. So I don't know if that's it. Because he like basically told his audience, like, harass them until they do it. But it's there <laughs> now. And it has all yep. of the, as far as I know, yep. all the original yes. music back. And it looks yes, good. It, it looks like it's been... Yep remastered and um so they've dumped some money into it to get it back up for the 21st century 
Um, yep. Tell me about your experience with this movie 30 some years ago and, and just recently. Because oh. this is like, what is, what is this to you? This movie, this movie was everything to me when <laughs> I was a teenager. This movie was the shit. Christian Slater was everything. I had such a huge crush on Christian Slater, specifically because of this role. Not cuffs. Um, I mean, not cuffs. No, oh. I did watch cuffs though because he was in it. I I went on a tear where I watched everything he was in. So his very early filmography, I've probably seen it. Yeah. <laughs> would watch anything he was in anything i could get my hands on at blockbuster or on tv um so yeah i loved this i this really spoke to me as a teenager it spoke to, looking back now and re-watching it it speaks to me as a and i hate the term gen xer but that is what i am that yeah. is when this obviously is situated and it really does capture the Enoe and the anger and the frustration of not only Generation X, but also of just being a teenager in general and mm. how everything sucks and you feel invisible and you feel weird and you feel like no one's listening to you. And it really has this incredible DIY anti-establishment punk ethos running through mm -hmm. the entire film. And I think the entire film, and I thought this then, and I think it now rewatching it, it entirely hinges on Christian Slater's performance. 100%. And it's, and it's funny because I literally, like when I was typing out my notes and typing out my thoughts in preparation, I put it hinges on his performance. And then I read, funny you mentioned The Ringer, I read a really in-depth behind the scenes of the film, came out two years ago by The Ringer. And they said the same like verbatim. I was like, are you in my brain, Ringer? But yes, it does. It completely hinges on Christian Slater's performance. And his performance is electric and energetic and organic and feels raw and incredibly authentic and just palpable and I think I think this is Christian Slater I think Christian Slater is a good actor I think this is the pinnacle of his career I don't think he's ever been better I don't think he ever will be better I think this is the best performance we will ever see from him and I think it's just a, a stellar performance overall you don't think it's um What's the movie where it rains and him and Morgan Freeman are, are fighting over money in that town that's flooding with Randy Quaid? What's that movie called? Black Rain. Not Black Rain. What's it called? Black no, Out? Black rain. rain Out? What's it called? You know what I'm talking about? I don't. <laughs> they flood a whole town. The whole town's flooding because of the storm. And there's a bank robbery, and his partner, uh, the, uh, Christian Slater, plays a... Um, this is it sounds so stupid. What's the title for it? <laughs> Money delivery guy. What are those guys called? That is what they're called. Is it really? <laughs> they got they got they got the big armored trucks. Yep. Yeah. And Ed yeah, I used to I used to work in a bank, and yes, we would call them the money delivery guys. Oh wow, well, that's what he is. <laughs> and Ed Asner is his partner, mm -hmm. and they get killed by Morgan Freeman and a gang of roustabouts because they're trying to get. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get the money and then randy no yeah randy quaid not dennis quaid randy quaid is the town sheriff and then he goes oh. crazy for the money okay. so you got real creepy randy quaid who's uh like murdering people and then morgan freeman who's murdering people and then uh christian slater is just stuck in the middle of it all and i think he ends up meeting with yeah. a woman who i don't know maybe is samantha mathis gretchen mall they're all the same and <laughs> <laughs> oh, ouch, no. 
No, no, no. Okay, so this soundtrack has the Pixies, it's got Soundgarden, yes. it's got the Descendants, it's got Sonic Youth, it's got Beastie Boys profane tracks. It's got more and more and more and more music. Um, you know, it was really interesting for me because I'm not a Gen Xer, but I was definitely alive and conscious during this time. So it, you know, it reminded me of that early 90s era, and we could wax poetic about that time for a long time because it's, it's, it was a very weird time in American culture, <laughs> right? Yes. You're kind of in the afterglow of Reagan, and so you have all that, like, anti-conservative punk spirit that's within youth culture. You yeah. know, you have all of these ex-hippie boomers who have become yuppies, essentially, or wannabe yuppies. And the culture is obsessed with materialism and banks get deregulated and consumer credit gets released to people. So people are able to get credit cards for high-end amounts. And basically, it's, it's fucked our economy from that point forward in this country. Destroyed all the post-war prosperity we had. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, and, you know, so people are living well beyond their means. Everyone's trying to keep up with the Joneses. You know, lifestyles of the rich and famous is very popular. You know, all that dynasty, like all of these like soap, you know, like like cheesy evening soaps are on. They're all about rich people. Everyone's aspiring to be rich. Their songs are just, I want to be rich. Do, 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 do. <laughs> and you're a kid in this. Right. This is the whole culture saying this message. And there's also MTV and MTV has come along in the 80s. And there's this like there's this weird mix of mainstream normie culture is this overly over the top. Kind of conservative, over the top, like wannabe 1950s, but with money. Uh, oh, yeah. Culture. And, and moralism and puritanism and, and mm -hmm. homophobia and all this sort of stuff. And then you're a kid and a teenager who's somehow being like raised by these subversive cultural forces because it, it's just, it's really, it's really hard to describe unless you were there because yeah. it's very weird to, to describe like music videos or the music yeah. industry as being a subversive influence because. Mm -hmm it's now it's just a part of the establishment. It is the establishment and it kind of right. was then as well, but it, I don't know if we were just not as savvy as at marketing or, or whatever, but you know, it was major labels putting out some of this music or trying to put out some of this music. And yet it felt like maybe because your parents hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and part of that was I also mean, the incursion of, 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 Hip hop and rap culture was starting to get into white suburbia. So you're starting to hear, yes, with the Beastie Boys, yes, with people like Fresh Prince and other people, but you're starting to get rap music showing up in white mm -hmm. America in the suburbs. And so, like, and that's a, like, not a big part of this movie, but it's there where oh, yeah, it's, it's white there. teens at high school listening to, you know, some pretty raw rap lyrics. Mm -hmm. And then, or listening to Harry Hardon with this like proto shock jock radio. And then at the same time, you have the ascension of Howard Stern. And wh yep. what I'm really saying is I think this movie is really like a precursor to not just Gen X, but the entire 90s teen culture that eventually would yeah. sweep up us 
yes. uh, older millennials. Because by the time we get to the mid nineties, everything's extreme. Everything, all the marketing tests as kids was like, your parents don't understand. Fuck your parents. Like, <laughs> re remember that? That was the marketing. I mean, yes. It was I, bubble I mean, tape. Yes. Remember bubble tape? Okay. Yes, they, I do. they sold <laughs> bubble gum and a tape measure to children. And the entire marketing campaign was adults are fucking idiots. Eat this fucking gum and tell your parents to go fuck themselves. That was the, basically the marketing campaign. It's the truth. Your principal can't smile, can't swim, can't rap, and can't stand bubble tape. Your school bus driver can't drive, wears curlers, makes funny noises, won't try bubble tape. No way, Jose. Bubble tape. It's six feet of bubble gum for you, not them. Apple Jacks. Do you know? Remember Apple Jacks? Yes. Do you remember the Apple Jacks commercials? Do you remember how much yes. attitude those kids, because the parents would be like, hey, what are you eating there, son? <laughs> and now in retrospect, <laughs> like the parents <laughs> were just like trying to, I don't know, talk to their kid. It was like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. And the parent would be like, hey, son, what are you having there for breakfast? <laughs> I'm eating my fucking Apple Jacks, Dad. Leave me the fuck alone. And the dad's like, oh, okay. Well, why is it called Apple Jacks? There aren't any apples in it, are there? Does it taste like apples? No, nah, it doesn't taste like apples. Why, why do you like it then? Because we eat what we like. Because <laughs> we That's eat right. what we like. That's right. But every right. kid's commercial, every kid's show was about being extreme. It was about having attitude. It was about adults and parents are fucking morons. They don't understand. And all the way through, again, to wrestling, everything comes back to wrestling, the Attitude Era, where they had 1,600 crotch chops per episode. I think you're, you are, but I think you're missing something really. You, you're not wrong. Yeah. You're missing some really big, and maybe because I'm not into wrestling, so that was so not my milieu yeah. or world. But there's all, I mean, it was also a time when like 90210 was huge. Melrose Place was huge. Yes. My so-called life was yes. huge. Like, all, like these shows and you know, grunge was huge. It was real. Like, yes, there's also <laughs> why people are so angry about eating apple jacks. Why kids are is <laughs> beyond me. But it's also tapping into to this unrest and this defiance that yes. is infiltrating music and TV shows that are actually treating teens like real people which is something that was not really happening in pop culture before and i think it, it i think you're right it really is a reaction to the conservatism of reagan era and so you have that conservatism but then you, of course you're going to have a, a backlash and a push against that and it's also the rise of aids and right. ignore that so it's like i think it's all of these things all of them well we talked about the real world. The real world shows up. You yes. start seeing yep. you start seeing LGBTQ people for the first time on TV. Real people, not Billy Crystal in soap, not actors playing oh, characters, but you start seeing real people and what they're really going mm -hmm. through. And then Pedro, of course, becomes one of the yep. first people with uh, AIDS, not just HIV, who is on television and is talking about his diagnosis and his illness and. You know, and it's like that doesn't seem like anything anymore. It doesn't seem like a big deal. But these things were being protested. These things were, you know, family groups and 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 whatever. We're seeing these things on TV and we're like, yeah, get this off TV and all this sort of stuff. And I, I it's just 
it's really, really, really hard to rewind the clock to people who didn't yeah. live through that experience because our culture seems so removed from that. Even though there's obviously still mm-hmm. angst and all this sort of stuff, it's just different. It's a different type of. It became. It was. It was a a, a reality that I think this this movie to some extent captures, and then it became yes. a marketing device where they were like the corporations leveraged teen angst into yeah. marketing campaigns to sell you material goods, yes, which yes. for whatever reason, and maybe you could explain this to us, <laughs> it comes up in this film. It really comes up in his next film we're going to talk about. Yep. Gen X was obsessed with the idea of selling out. Yes. And they were obsessed with the idea of like almost like the whole slacker identity is almost mm-hmm. anti-materialism in a sense. Right. Yes. I don't want a job. Yes. I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want a lot of, a bunch of money. I don't care about your mm-hmm. car. I mean, we can carry that all the way through to fight club, right? Like you're buying yep. shit. You don't need to impress people. You don't like blah, 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 right. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right. Like that's the extent exactly. that's that angst. Once it hits like 25, right. That's mm-hmm. that eight late eighties, early nineties, teen angst matured. Now it's this existential crisis. And yet that attitude is the thing that was, uh, uh, spun around <laughs> by giant <laughs> corporations to market yeah. bubblegum, uh, cereal, <laughs> breakfast cereal, <laughs> cartoons, professional yep. wrestling, and everything else. Yep. So albums, albums, you clothes, music, you clothes. Yeah. Yep. So it, as this movie is just before Gen X angst goes mainstream. <laughs> as someone who lived through it all, what what was that like? <laughs> when all of a sudden your angst was turned into a gap commercial. <laughs> I mean, that's infuriating. The thing about seeing it, seeing pump up the volume on the precipice of that, though, I think speaks to how it captures lightning in a bottle and how it really spoke to a very specific moment in time that I that I know you keep saying and you keep saying rightfully so that if you didn't live through it you can't really understand it and I keep thinking something we haven't even talked about which kind of blows my mind because I think this is such a salient point too is that there was no internet there were no cell phones you couldn't get in touch with anybody at a moment's notice you couldn't research things you couldn't like the way things are so accessible now yeah which is kind of interesting that pump up the volume was not accessible to stream for so many years is kind of an anomaly well not as much as it I wish it was because there are many films that are not available, unfortunately, for physical media or streaming, but that's a different conversation. But yeah, but I really think it does speak to this moment of you were in the moment, you, you know, people couldn't get in touch with you, you couldn't have uh, multiple outlets to be heard. You couldn't, you didn't have TikTok, you didn't have Instagram, you didn't have Twitter, you didn't have YouTube, you didn't have blogs, you didn't have podcasts. And this really speaks to that. Yes. And it, and I, and so seeing that and feeling like, yes, this is speaking to me. Yes, I feel heard watching this movie. Is this feels electric? This feels energizing. This feels monumental is so it's so incredible to be seen by a film, even in a small way. And then to watch that all be co-opted by corporatism is soul crushing and devastating and really disappointing because capitalism has it's woven its way throughout every single part of our lives. It's so hard to disseminate from it. It's but it's 
still really depressing to see well, your angst transformed into a Gap commercial. <laughs> well, as I was watching this movie, I had to mentally put myself back into what it felt like to be. I would have been more of like a preteen. I mm-hmm. I had to go back in time and go, okay, what did it feel like? And one of the things that I think gets missed and why maybe younger generations would be like, I don't get what the big deal about this is, not just as a movie, but at literally it, within the internal logic of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's just a guy talking to the microphone. Everybody does it every day because everybody has a microphone in their pocket. The smartphones, you could broad, like you could TikTok and broadcast. You don't even know who's watching you. You could just broadcast right, right. any thought, anything you have at any point to nobody or to millions of people at any time around the world. Like it's just with YouTube and tick, it's just everything, right? Right. You couldn't do that. The media that we got was mediated to us. It was pre-selected, yes. pre-packaged, chosen, and it was and it was time sensitive. This thing. If you want to watch a movie or a TV show, either you set your VCR, which almost <laughs> nobody knew how to do. It was so hard to set a VCR. It was so hard. Some VCRs were impossible to program. It wasn't I just. I don't remember it being that hard, was it? It was hard. It wasn't just pushing a button because you had to make sure no, the TV was on the right yeah. station. And you had to make sure that it would flip. If it wasn't, it would flip to that station <laughs> and, and record at the right yes. time. And the right clock on the VCR. Bingo! And, right and you had to make yeah. sure that the right clock was set to the right time. And, and yep. just, it was a mess. Because you had multiple, <laughs> you had the internal clock, and then you had the clock mm-hmm. on the TV, and then you had the clock, with that, the external clock that showed, which everybody's always flashed 12. And because it was a pain <laughs> in the ass to set. And you had to align all this bullshit <laughs> to make sure your cable box was communicating with your VCR and your TV. It was, it was coaxial cables everywhere. Okay. It wasn't just as simple as I push a button on a remote and like, just so I record the whole series. You couldn't fucking do it. So when, when something came out, you, your ass had to be in front of the TV or if you wanted to hear (laughs) that song and you did not have money to buy the single, Mm -hmm. you had to sit your ass in front of the radio and you, and, and if you had a fancy boom box, you could record off the radio onto the cassette or you had to record, literally just put a microphone <laughs> up to the fucking speaker of the radio yep. and record it onto a cassette player. Yep. Everything was so analog and was so much more difficult and it moved so much slower. Yes. That if, if you're in that time and in that place and in that world where there is nothing for you and you were in the suburbs of Scottsdale, Arizona or Phoenix, wherever the fuck these people are supposed to be, and you have even less for you. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing yeah. to do. You go to school. You do your activities. You go home. There's nothing waiting for you there but homework and television and yep. yuppie parents. And you, you don't know what to do with yourself. And there's nothing speaking to you. And you feel completely isolated because you have nobody saying, hey, I think just like you. Because that's not how right. high school works. I mean, I guess it kind of no. does kind of does now with Zoomers, maybe. Um, <laughs> it didn't work that way for us or for no. or for Gen Xers for sure. There was still so much social capital invested in being cool and being impenetrable and, and not being vulnerable and not talking about your struggles. And nobody, you know, nobody was going around talking about you didn't have like division one football players playing Dungeons and Dragons. Not publicly, right? 
No. You know what I'm saying? You didn't have. Yes. Now, with youth culture, I think this is a really good thing. I think they've come a long way. You can be a, a quote-unquote jock, but be a video game nerd <laughs> or be a yeah. comic book nerd. Or you could be a comic book nerd and also be, you know, and you can get good grades and you can be this and you can be that. And you can dress like a slacker, but still get a fucking scholarship to go to college. <laughs> and it, nobody cares. You can be, kind of be anything. Not that there aren't other issues that teens struggle with. It's just different. Right, right. right. There, were these, there were these templates that you had to fit into and you weren't allowed to be more than one thing. You were not allowed to be... You know, it was it was way more John Hughes like <laughs> at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And and so if you don't have anybody speaking to you, right. you don't have anybody speaking to you don't have any peers who are being open with you and being vulnerable. And you know, that guy that's the coolest guy in school is talking about his mental health struggles and like, oh, my sexuality and I don't know, and my ethnic identity and how am I dealing with white privilege? They didn't work dealing with any of that shit. Right? No. It wasn't a conversation. It was not a conversation. And so if you get this guy who is has this illegal broadcast that's going out on a pirate radio station where it's a teenager just like you in your high school saying the stuff that everybody else is afraid to say. Yep. And not about their life, about their feelings, about their about their everything. That would have seemed so revolutionary. And that is why shows like The Real World felt so revolutionary at the time. It is to a degree why someone like a Howard Stern, even though it's like not all sensitive and talk about our feelings, but he's pushing the boundaries of the FCC and like, what can you do? What can you say? He's saying things that are taboo. You're not supposed to say this stuff on the radio. There are all these unspoken and spoken rules that we're supposed to follow, these social conventions, this this moralism we're supposed to follow. Anybody that was sort of bumping up against that musically or through any kind of mass communication was, that was, that was a revolutionary act at the time. I think that's part of what this movie touches on. So I think that that is why the teens who populate this movie, it's almost silly looking back on it now that they are like, so enamored by this guy just talking about jerking off on the radio <laughs> like why in the world would there be football fields feel filled with tr like trucks of teenagers dancing and hooping and hollering because harry hardon is jerking off on the radio like obviously like why why but because you have to go back to that point in time well, right, totally. But also, again, I think it comes back to something else that this film really capitalizes on quite well is how hormonal teenagers are, how much they want to have sex, how much they want to explore their sexuality and their bodies. And this really taps into that as well. And again, it's something that so often teenagers are put in this weird space societally and in media where they're not kids, but they're not adults, but they're not allowed to express themselves, but they're not allowed to explore things. And I think this does that. And I, it's so funny hearing you say like, why would they be enamored with them? Why wouldn't they be? I think it makes perfect sense. And maybe because I did live through that time, I would a hundred percent having grown up living in a place similar where the only thing to do was to go to the mall, go to school, and that was it, and feeling like an outcast, feeling so isolated, 
if I had heard someone on pirate radio like this, you bet your ass I would have gone out to a football field and gotten together with other people. Like, that would have been amazing. So I, it completely makes sense to me. So if a guy was <laughs> pretending to jerk off on the radio when you were a teen, you would have gathered with 10,000 other high schoolers and <laughs> been dancing, <laughs> dancing the football field. I'm like, yeah, Harry, yeah. No, I would not have been dancing and not for the jerking <laughs> off simulation. They I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I don't think it's because he's jerking off. I think it's because he's bucking the system. Yes. I think <laughs> so speaking of but bucking yes. the system and jerking off, can we talk about <laughs> Samantha Mathis's poetry in this movie? Uh, do we have to? Okay. <laughs> Jam me, jack me, push me, pull me, talk hard. Yeah. <laughs> Which ends up being the final line of the movie. And the I, re- yes. I really get the sense that they really wanted that to be like a catchphrase. You know, they're really trying to get yeah. talk hard as over as like some kind of a something. And it um, it, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> like I like I, I like Samantha Mathis in this movie. I think this is her first okay. role. I like yeah. her. I think that she is um uh I think she's she's uh Her whole, her whole, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, ensemble attitude, her whole, whatever you want to oh, call like it. Her vibe. Aesthetic. Yeah. Her whole aesthetic, her whole vibe is very attractive. Sort of this deranged, dark woman that says a lot about me. <laughs> who has no. Revealing some things. <laughs> yeah. Who has no sense of personal boundaries and won't leave this poor guy alone. You know? Oh, she's crazy, right? (laughs) And I hate, you know, you know, I hate to say, oh, this woman's crazy, but she's really, she has no boundaries and does not give a shit. She has no boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And um, he's like, please leave me alone directly. He's like, just please leave me alone. She doesn't. (laughs) No. She just keeps writing him these weird, very bad poems, which I'm guessing Alan (laughs) Alan Moyle wrote. I'm assuming. Um, But I don't mind the talk hard part. That's the, that part, which also was the slogan on the poster. Talk hard. I don't, I don't mind that. The rest I think is dumb. No, Uh, thank you. On the one hand, I don't mind that. It's bad. On the other hand, she's supposed to be a high schooler and most people write bad high school poetry. That's true. So is is it more authentic because it is shitty, weird? Yes. Like, like. It's 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 fan fiction, right? That's what she's writing. She's writing Harry Hard on yes. fan fiction. Yep, yep. Like erotic fanfic, and it's for this guy, and it's just <laughs> so strange. Um, Wait, why is it strange? The poetry that she's writing to him, because again, I completely get it. It makes so much sense. <laughs> I I just don't know why she's upset. I I I understand the entertainment value, I guess, of this guy saying this guy's illegally broadcasting from somewhere right. in the neighborhood. He goes to high school with us and he's telling our teachers to go fuck themselves. Exactly. And then he fucks himself on the radio. And then it's all to be taboo. <laughs> he's doing it, it's it's really to offend the sensibilities of their parents. And that's what yes. it gets yes. him over with the crowd. I understand that. I don't understand why he would be like this religious beacon of hope. And this erotic uh, magnet for all of these like sad proto grunge <laughs> girls. I don't get that. Okay, part. well, I get it because again, 
I was so turned on by Christian Slater in this performance. Yeah, but you could see him. So you saw what even he looked like. Voice, he looked like Christian his, Slater. Even just his voice, his energy. It wasn't just because he looked like Christian Slater. Not for me. It's also because of the personality. He is in this role as Harry, like as Hard Harry. He is fearless he is bold he takes risks that is exciting that is exciting for a teenager to want to and especially when you find out oh it's someone who's also a teenager who goes to my school yeah i think that is so tantalizing and so tempting of course somebody would have a crush on him i'm surprised he didn't get more fan mail that was erotic fan fiction okay uh, now <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna be a little bit nitpicky here with the movie okay which again in general i i like the film but <laughs> I'm gonna be a little bit nitpicky. This motherfucker reveals everything about himself. Yes, he's like, yes, he does. Right? He's like, I live in this neighborhood. <laughs> I go to this school. I, I just moved here. I ju I ju how many people just move? Right, right, right. I that eat my lunch in the stairwell. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then, then when she's like, just waits at the stairwell. He's like, how the fuck did you find me? As you said. <laughs> How stupid. She's not fucking Sherlock Holmes. No. You gave it all away. And you gave an address. <laughs> Send your mail to blankety blank blank at blank street. He was well, smart was enough. Box. Yeah, P.O. Box. He was smart enough to use a fake name to sign up for the P.O. Yes. Box. Yes. But stupid enough to have a P.O. Box and go get the fucking mail himself. <laughs> That's true. Sure if true. this guy is this popular, somebody <laughs> there's a lot of people that would just be waiting at the P.O. box that's right next to the video store, by the way, <laughs> with a very prominently um, <laughs> positioned poster for The Hidden, which is a movie I've talked about on this show. Have you ever seen The Hidden? I have. It's a, I love that movie. It's a really good B movie from the 80s. It's not a bad movie. Yeah, it's been a long time yeah. since I've seen it, but I remember it being quite enjoyable. It, star it stars Kyle MacLachlan, who makes yes, an appearance in one great. of the other movies. And he's great in it. And he's, gr he's really good <laughs> no, in well, it. Well, not yeah. in the movie coming up, but in the, in the <laughs> hidden. <laughs> in the hidden, he's great. Yeah. And so it's like you're telling me a bunch of teenagers in a fucking no-name town who've got nothing to do but go to the mall in the video <laughs> right. store wouldn't just camp out outside the video store. Okay, here's, yeah, that's another thing. In this era, don't you remember when we were teens and kids? We just stood around loitering in places because yeah. there was nowhere to fucking go. Dunkin' Donuts parking lot. Yeah, yeah, you just stood around, <laughs> and you and then you'd go from the mall where you stood around because you didn't have any money. Maybe you'd see yep. a movie if you had some money because movies were kind of yes. cheap then. Yep, and you'd go were. to the fucking video store and you stand in yep. front of that, and you go to the Seven <laughs> Eleven. And you stand in front stand of that. that. Yeah. Standing. And you go, go to a park and you stand around in the park. And that's all yep. you did. You just went from place to place, standing around, trying to impress each other. That's all <laughs> that it was. Because you had nowhere to go. Yeah, you're, you're really uh, articulating my teenage years. It, it was all of us, though. It was <laughs> all of us. It's sad. It's just sad. Because there was nothing. You didn't have the dis constant do. distraction right. of social media or I could watch right. any movie ever made at any time right. on my phone. Right. It just didn't exist. So you had yep. to go places and you didn't have any money to do anything. So you went to these yeah. stores and you just stood there. <laughs> <laughs> right? You're telling yeah. me that a group of these 
hardcore, hard, hairy <laughs> uh, hangers-ons wouldn't just <laughs> lo- like loiter out in front of that fucking P.O. box and wait for oh, him to get so his mail? Would. Yep. I was like, come on, Alan Samantha- Moyle. Samantha Mathis would not have been the only one. No, she wouldn't have been the first. She wouldn't even have been the first that week. <laughs> I was like, this is ridiculous. And the, the fact that he acts so surprised that people start figuring out who he is. You've given us your That's biography. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> okay. I, here's why I think this movie does well to summarize, because we got to move on. Here's why I think the movie does well. I think it really does a good job retrospectively. I didn't see it at the time. I've only seen it long after the time. Oh, wow. Interesting. I think the movie does a really, really good job retrospectively. Uh, kind of it, part of it's just uh, circumstance. It finds itself at that this in-between moment of late 80s it's it's basically just pre-grunge is the easiest way to describe it yes but it's right everything that would become part of that subculture that would go mainstream Mm -hmm. and get commercialized and everything we talked about it's right here it's all right here you know if if you could look from 1992 93 to 1995 And that massive growth and that massive transformation of teen culture and the expansion of, of, uh, of rap music and grunge and alternative and radio stations flipping over to being alternative stations, going from mix stations or pop stations. And that this, this, this window of time we found ourselves in, in the, and all the way through, you can draw a straight line from this all the way through to like the Matrix, to Fight Club, to all of this sort of stuff, late 90s sort of stuff which is really the culmination. It's really the peak of all of this. Um, this is it. This is like the starting point. Um, not culturally, but encapsulated in a movie. Does that make sense? The movie, yeah, no, the movie isn't agree. the culture because it's, it's a reflection of the culture, but it is encapsulating a moment in time right before everything's about to change. And I think because of that, and because of the strength of the performances, it does have a place of... Uh, it's a movie that should be remembered and should be available and we should be yes. able to stream it. I just don't know that young people would be able, I think, I think a lot of like zoomers would just laugh their ass off at this because <laughs> it's fucking hokey. Now it's hokey. It's, I'm, I don't, it's hokey. I'm, I disagree. It's I hokey. disagree. And I, you know, it could be because I, like I said, I could be Megan, blinded by these nostalgia. kids are watching euphoria. Euphoria. Yeah, I watch Euphoria. Okay? Euphoria is amazing. Euphoria but is listen, the modern version of listen. Pump Up the Volume. And if you sat them side by <laughs> side, listen. you would laugh at Pump Up the Volume. I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. I, I know what you're saying. And yes, there are certain hokey elements. Like, I don't think they come off as hokey, though. And, I, and here's why. I think because it's dealing with such serious issues, the fact that it's dealing with teen suicide, it's dealing with being gay. And I have to say, this is one of the only films that I can recall that is a film from the 90s 
and early 2000s and late 80s that is not a homophobic film. There is not a homophobic joke in it. There, if like when the kid calls in, or actually when Harry calls him and he's like, "Oh, you wrote me about about the incident. Why don't you tell us all?" And it comes to find out that the kid is gay and he got bullied for it, and it's this horrible, really sad story. And he's like, "Now you're gonna," and he says, "You're gonna call me a wimp and the f word too, aren't you?" And he's like no he's like and he's like i'm thinking about and he's like i think i'm thinking about how strong you know it must be and how hard that is and that is such a revolutionary moment and something else that's really interesting is that alan moyle wanted the kid who committed suicide to be a gay kid but like the studios took that out or wanted that out and alan moyle was like no that needs to be in so now it's not never explicitly said why he commits suicide but anyway, my point is, is that it's dealing with these really serious issues of isolation, suicide, depression, being gay. And I think it does it in a really real, unauthentic way that doesn't come off hokey. So any any elements that might be like, whoa, the 90s were fucking weird and I can't understand that <laughs> and it feels hokey. I feel like yeah. it's balanced out by the great performances and by the sensitive way it's handling the intense subject matter. If you are 25 and under and you are a listener of binge <laughs> movies, please tweet and or email or TikTok or whatever the fuck the show. Let us know what you think about pump up the volume after you watch it. <laughs> and then let us know whether or not you think it's hokey. I, I, I'm not saying that it is bad. I'm just saying that right. it's moment has also passed. Because it is a, yes, it's dealing with universal issues of mental health, depression, all the things that you just said. But mm-hmm. the, and yes, it is affirming and positive towards those things. And, and it is, it is, doesn't shrink back from the tragedy of it. It doesn't shrink back from, um, you know, LGBTQIA plus issues, doesn't, you know, all this sort of stuff, which it really is way ahead of its time and really revolutionary in yes. 1991. And there are no jokes and it's not played for laughs or I, I, everything you're saying is true. I'm saying that still overall the movie, it's presentation. I don't know that young people would get just like even I'm just a little bit younger than you. And I'm like, I don't really get why this guy's that big of a deal because by the time I, mean, I, I was a teen, by the time I was a teen, this guy was what television was. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. This was MTV. This was well, MTV. Fair. Right. It's fair. But I mean, I would ask You lived through pl- that transition. I did. This which was, is a weird. You were not really allowed to say these things. There was, you couldn't yeah, do this stuff. True. Right. 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 So. It was a very weird time. Yeah. But I would, I would argue though, would like, would kids, kids, teens, people who are like 20 now, would they laugh at Rebel Without a Cause? Would they laugh I at did. The Breakfast Club? <laughs> would they think that's okay? Okay. Well, I didn't. Rebel Without a Cause. Like, why? <laughs> immediately this he's just like crying it's like what the fuck is your problem he's like oh like like you're tearing me apart for the first 10 minutes of the movie and you're like your parents have just come to get you out of jail at two o'clock in the morning and your dad is like the most loving guy ever yeah his dad is awesome his dad's wearing a fucking apron in the house he's like that's that's what's supposed to be so bad about his life is his dad's a cuck and a simp for his mom like that's what's so bad Fuck you. <laughs> My point is. <laughs> Rebel without a cause many, stinks. I many said it. <laughs> teen 
many teen films are capturing the zeitgeist yeah. and are capturing a moment, of course. And so <laughs> I still think certain ones are timeless. I'm not even saying Rumble Without a Cause. I'm just, but there's also like Blackboard Jungle and there's, there's just, there's so many, yes. that, you know, Rumblefish, you name it. Yeah. Anyway. I just, I think you can say that about a lot of teen films that are dealing with teen angst. <laughs> and I think this one still holds up. Whereas Rebel Without a Cause, yeah, maybe it doesn't. I think this one does. Well, I think it more or less holds up. I do, I, it, 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 it teeters between me laughing at it and me liking it. And, and it's all, That's fair. all the way through, it's entertaining. I am shocked that this guy wrote this in his 40s. I'm shocked. Yeah. yeah. That doesn't seem as weird now. But at this time, that this guy would be able to capture this, like, early 90s teen culture as a 40, yeah. 44, 43-year-old man is right. really weird. And, uh, but, and you he, know what? to his credit, he did it, so... He did. And you know what's funny about that? He wanted Christian Slater to improvise a lot of it. And, and Christian Slater was like, no, I don't improvise. And so everything that Christian Slater says in the film is not improvised. It's exactly what Alan Moyle wrote, which wow. I think is just, I know, like I had always assumed that yeah. there was some improv going on because that's what that performance feels like. Yeah. But no, that's, those were his words. And I'm like, wow, that is, that's incredible. He, yeah. He, he captured a zeitgeist without realizing it. So to that, yes, for that reason, yes. I'm going to assign a, not just a score, but a dollar value for this movie. If I had to sell it here in the store in Akron, Ohio, what would I sell it for? And I would sell it for, again, this is worth limited to 10 bucks. These are old movies. They're used copies, whatever, whatever. <laughs> it is eight bucks for me. I'd give it an $8 value. It's, uh, I'd sell it. And it is, of course, going to be the best of the week for me. This is the best of the sponsored episode. So this is, uh, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert, yeah, it's all yeah, downhill. It's all downhill. <laughs> what, what about you, Megan? If you had to give a, a dollar amount for this, what would you give it? I'd give it $9.99. Holy shit! Yeah. $9.99. Mm -hmm. Yep. Wow. Okay, so that, I, that if you're, t you're, wow. Are you... <laughs> Is exchange going to be a ten and a ten dollar value then, or is that is that, is that me? It's going to be your number one. What's your number one? Oh, this is my number oh, one. Oh, okay, all right. all right. Oh, this is my number one. No, because <clears throat> if we're going by scores, I would have given it a different score. But going by prices, I would charge more for this. I would charge over ten. So nine ninety nine is what I would charge. For okay, this. very good, very good. Well, let's move along to a. <laughs> Another teen <laughs> angst film from slightly uh, down the zeitgeist train. We're talking about <laughs> Empire Records, which came out in 1995 and currently has a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. Corey and her friends have had some crazy days before. Shock me, shock me, shock me with that deviant behavior. But this one may break the record. This fall. Today is the day that I'm going to tell Corey how I feel about her. Insanity rules. You forgot your thingy. At Empire Records. I swear to God, you get smarter the shorter your skirt gets. Well, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> Empire Records. Empire Records was directed by Alan Moyle. It was written by Carol Heikinen. It's time for return of Renee Zellweger, last seen in Jerry Maguire, I believe. Uh, that, that can't be right. We've seen her since then, mm -hmm. haven't we? 
I've seen, I've done some elsewhere. It is the triumphant <laughs> return of Tobey Maguire, who was a full-blown alcoholic during the film in this movie, and asked that all of his scenes be removed. So even though he's listed in the credits, he's not in the movie. <laughs> last I had scene forgotten is, about that. <laughs> last scene is Spider-Man 3. This film was released September 22nd, 1995, on a budget of $10 million. Megan, how much do you think this thing made worldwide on $10 million budget? Oh, and I looked it up too. I wish I knew. I didn't it make something ridiculous like two hundred thousand dollars or three hundred and three thousand dollars. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's somewhat <laughs> uh, sense. Um, here's my synopsis. No one ever had it tougher than teen whites in the nineties. <laughs> Historically, yeah. I think that's true, right? Has anybody oh, ever yeah. had a more difficult time than suburban teens <laughs> in the nineties? Yeah, not not black people, not 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 queer people. No, it's definitely suburban white teens. You said it. It's the triumphant return also of Robin Tunney, last seen in End of Days, who is a smoke show in this movie. That also ought to tell you something about my my personal uh, taste. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we need to discuss. <laughs> The biggest thing about this movie is that soundtrack peaked at number 63. The, this is another one of those movies where the soundtrack kind of blew up. And uh, there yes. was several hits off of this movie. The Jim Blossoms, uh, Till I Hear From You, right? Is that what it's called? Jim Blossoms mm -hmm. basically blew up off of this movie. This is the movie yep. that broke them really big. Um, I know that doesn't mean anything. You're like, who the fuck are the Jim Blossoms? Ask They're your, great. Ask your dad. <laughs> ask your mom. Uh, oh, I feel so old. <laughs> ask your grandpa. <laughs> ask your grandpa, kids, who the gin blossoms were. Ask Grandma Megan. <laughs> okay, Megan. Here's why. Here's my thought process. Now, this is more in my wheelhouse. Okay. Yes. This is more. Now, I am. This is my teenage years, more or less. Yes. Okay. This culture, this music, absolutely mm -hmm. does not exist anymore. Okay. It's gone. There, there was this window of time where white college rock radio mm -hmm. grunge had come and gone rap is still on the rise so rap is still around still on the rise we're now into the tupac and biggie east coast versus west coast era but they're going to be dead soon sadly so yeah. rap is on the rise we're not too we're not too like blink 182 quite yet like um um What's her face? Gwen Stefani's band. What was her band again? What was her band? Oh, um, no, no doubt. No doubt. No doubt is just gonna break into the mainstream. We're 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 just we're start we're getting all of this, like, just like I I don't even know how to describe it. But it's 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 these kids. It's how they dress. It's how they talk. It's the music they listen to. It's this weird quasi stoner slacker white teen. <laughs> in baby doll dresses or in schoolgirl uniforms or in oversized t-shirts and piercings and like it's not quite skater culture it's definitely not grunge anymore it's like we're we're kind of into pop music but we're we're in a weird shit too but we also kind of make fun of pop music and and there's also like and it's this generation is not as concerned with selling out We've kind of left that whole, like, I don't want to sell out. Like, some of us are, some of us aren't. Some of us just want to buy in. It's a very unique moment. It's a very unique moment. And this movie captures it perfectly. 
and that is the beginning and end of its value because <laughs> it's a day in the life story. Uh, it's a it's a great setup for a movie. You know, twenty four hours and whatever, right? Yep. And yep. it's it's all this random shit's going to happen and go in and out of the store and all you know. It's a it's a series of vignettes with this overarching kind of plot line of this lost money and what are we going to do? The store is going to get bought by a mega tower records is going to come buy our store and the evil corporation is going to come by, which is hilarious because within a handful of years from this point, tower records would be out of fucking business. So (laughs) the invention of an MP3, all of this is irrelevant. All of this is irrelevant in like four years from now. So it's hilarious in retrospect. Um, and are we selling out or I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be so bad to work for tower records or why are we doing this? And I want to sleep with this guy who's, I don't know, who, <laughs> Donnie Osmond, basically. I don't, I don't understand that at all. Why? Oh, Rex Manning. Yeah. yeah. Why is Liv Tyler obsessed with Rex Manning? I don't understand that. I don't know. What That's is he good. supposed to be? Is he supposed to be a guy from the seventies? Who's like on his last leg as a pop star or is he supposed to be? Cause his music sounds pretty current to nineties pop music. So this is very yeah. weird. But anyway, it the problem weird. with the movie is <laughs> in all these different moments, and all these different, we get touches of all of these, these stories, but there are no characters, not yes. a single yes. person who works at this store. No one in this ensemble is, yep. a, is a character. Agreed. So we don't care. Agreed. Who, who gives a shit? Yes. All this random shit's happening. Okay, this guy's a sh- shoplifter. This guy wants to buy his oh my partner God. out of the store. Anthony, whatever his name is. Lepaglia. Yeah. This 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 kid uh, gambled the money away. This thing's happening. Oh, li- my God. Uh, uh, so-and-so's on. Like, and, 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 and it just devolves to like a certain point. like, well, you're on speed. And then, and then, <laughs> and then there's just hysterics. And you would think that that would factor in. It doesn't factor in. She spills no. her speed all over the floor. She's like, nobody look at me. And then she cleans very, it all up. And she cries. Jesse Stano. Yes. By the bell. It's amazing. And I'm like, oh, that's the explanation for Liv Tyler's performance of why she just randomly has these fits is that she's on diet pills and there's speed. Yeah. So she can stay thin. And then so and so's a nympho, and so and so's a whore, and so and so's an asshole, and so and so has suicidal ideation, and it's all played so because the characters are so slight. Yes. None of this melodrama has any impact whatsoever, and, and so no. it, the movie is not funny, the movie is not engaging, the movie is not dramatic, the movie is not. It is two plus hours of a waste of your time. I it, this movie stinks. <laughs> I saw it when orig- I saw this movie when it originally came out. I didn't get to go to the theaters, but I saw it when it came out in home video, and I watched yeah. it. And other than thinking that uh, Liv Tyler was hot and that Robin because she was Tony was hot because they were yes, and that all the women in this movie were hot as because you know that that's all I got from it. <laughs> I was like these women are hot, but this movie it just stinks. Yeah, to, even to the point where. They play that Jim Blossom song 30 yep. times, <laughs> right? There isn't even the diversity of music that we had in Pump Up, the, Pump Up the Volume. It's similar sounding music, or it's the exact same song played over and over and over again. And this, this movie is just a 
misfire from beginning to end. And here's what's sad about it. I think yeah. this, from a direction perspective, I think this is his best work as a director. Whoa! I think this movie is 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 fairly well directed because I think it has money behind it. Because even Pump Up the Volume didn't have any money. This movie has money. We've got actual tracking shots. <laughs> I think the 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 stage, the the set, it looks reasonably okay. You, you can just tell that there's there's production value behind it. What there isn't behind it is a script. There is no script here. The script no. stinks, and the performances. It's hard to judge them because they're not characters. They're just reactions because they're they're not they're not real people. They're just reacting to things, and it's just what. Let me let me kick it over to you. What do you think this movie yeah. is trying to be? Well, so I think what it's trying to be is I think it's trying to be kind of like a clerk's like relaxed <clears throat> day in the life. And because I read a behind the scenes interview with kind of a reunion with the cast and the crew and Moyle said, so this was taken out of his hands and recut yes. from what I have read and he said that the studio wanted this film to be on cocaine and he's like and we wanted it to be on pot and so he seemed to want like a very mellow kind of we're all a family you know even if though we're dysfunctional kind of vibe but that's not what happens and because these characters are so slight so I think what he wanted to happen was kind of this lovable misfit family music brings us all together music is uniting us and that's not what happens at all. It's instead you get tropes. You get Deb, who played by Robin Tunney, who is an absolute ridiculous trope. It is such a trope to see a woman cut her hair in the mirror. Oh, that's how you know she's got mental illness. That's how you know she's unraveling. And then, and, and I'm saying that, I'm like, oh my God, she's going to unravel. And because this was my first time watching it. I actually oh, never watched it when I was young. Wow, yeah, yeah, so this was my first time. So I'm like, oh, I guarantee she's going to be the fuck up. And yep, then the very next scene, you see her suicide attempt bandages on her wrist. And yes. I'm like, of course, of course, <laughs> because she is just a trope. And of course, Gina, played by Renee Zellweger, who's always a great actor, of course, she's the slutty one and we're going to slut shame her. And of course, Liv Tyler is the speed addict. And like, you're right. These these are not characters. They are tropes. They have nothing. I actually don't think this is a well-directed film. And I think that's so interesting. Really? I think, yeah, because... And of course, direction comes down to many different things, depending on the film and the artistic yeah, vision, which yeah. I actually think the artistic vision is is fine. I think it's quite OK. But I think so often the director is eliciting performances from actors. And this is actually, for the most part, a good cast. Robin Tunney is great in The Craft. Liv Tyler is amazing in The Leftovers. Uh, Renee Zellweger is great in everything from Chicago to Cold Mountain to various other things. She's and not good in this. No, she's not. <laughs> Anthony LaPaglia is good in Betsy's Wedding, and he's awful in he's this. He's awful. Like, that's Almost like, miscast. Yes, yeah, he's bad. completely miscast. He's bad. And that's the thing. Like, these are actors who I actually like and yeah. have enjoyed in other work, and they're terrible here. So I think that's a huge problem. First starts with a script. It's a shit script, and I think it's also not helped by Alan Moyle at all. But, yeah. But I, I will say it looks pretty good. You're right. The cinematography is pretty good. The production design is pretty good. So I will give it that. But, yeah, I think this is trying to be a lovable misfit family you know, we're bounding together and it's just, 
and it's also again it, it's continuing alan moyle's theme of indie versus corporatism yes. which hey i'm all here for that's great yeah. but it's not really saying anything it's not really doing anything oh we're gonna ignore that lucas stole nine thousand dollars oh we're gonna ignore that Corey just trashed the store because she's on speed like <laughs> what like yeah. what we're gonna ignore the fact that warren stole and then came back and held us up at gunpoint like what yeah no it is it's it almost feels like it's trying to be a screwball farce and it just doesn't work i i i definitely think that's what it's supposed to be i think it's supposed to be there's another movie that's kind of like that like has a similar sensibility although it's more of like a road story kind of that's on this list but it's um it definitely feels like this record store is the center of the universe for these people Yes, and yes. that this is a like you like you said a dysfunctional family, but they really love each other, mm-hmm. but they're highly dysfunctional, and in various ways. And we're going to kind of see all their all their different idiosyncrasies and and crazinesses come out, and then all also all this like crazy stuff's going to happen. And of course, it's like it's all happening on Rex Manning Day, and <laughs> and to me, that's a joke. They never get over the bow. The joke never gets. No over to why is this supposed to be funny right it's rex manning day in the store what (laughs) is funny about it i think in 1995 what's supposed to be funny about it (laughs) is that he's like a 70s or 80s pop star because they even say something about growing up watching him on tv so he's almost like a partridge family like who was the one guy that the the cute guy from partridge family um oh oh god not danny Um, bonaducci (laughs) No, <laughs> you know who I'm talking no, about. No, yes. Um. Oh God, why can't I? I can't think of it. And he name, became yes, a pop star and whatever. Yes. And even in the '90s, yes. he would still tour local casinos and play for your mom, and people would go see him. <laughs> right. Oh my God, that's driving me nuts because I can think of his face. I can see his face. David, Danny, David, Cassidy, da- Cassidy, David, David Cassidy. Cassidy. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. So I think that's what he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be David Cassidy, right? Yeah, that's that's that tracks. And he's an and he's trying to reboot his career and whatever, but he's an asshole. He's this entitled guy <laughs> who doesn't realize his fifteen minutes are up. Why would Liv Tyler, who is supposed to be what sixteen, <laughs> seventeen, yeah, why would she be obsessed with David Cassidy? <laughs> why would a seventeen-year-old girl in 1995 she doesn't want to fuck gavin rosdale she wants to fuck david cassidy (laughs) she doesn't want to fuck kurt cobain who's dead but any of these people eddie vetter anybody anybody who's actually on the radio (laughs) she doesn't want to fuck will smith but she wants to fuck david cassidy it just doesn't jive (laughs) but you can't help who you're attracted to don't you remember what teens were like in the nineties? Yes, you and if I told you some of the pe- if I told you some of the people I was attracted to, you might be like, Megan, what what the fuck is wrong with you? Was David Cassidy one of those people? No, but I will tell you, I will tell you someone who was that I've gotten a lot of shit for, and I got shit for it when I was a teen. Vince Neil from Motley Crue. At least that okay, that at least kind of makes sense. See, I think so too. <laughs> Because hair metal didn't really die out until grunge. Right, right. So he was a star. Like that, he's still a concurrent star 
with your youth. <laughs> yes. No, I agree. Yeah. I trust me. It makes sense to me. If you had said to me <laughs> I had a crush on David Hasselhoff, I, that even that would make sense, <laughs> right? But th- even that would make sense because Knight Rider was at least the eighties. That's but, true. But to say yeah. I want to fuck this guy from nineteen sixty nine or nineteen seventy two, and you're seventeen years old, it doesn't make sense. Oh, no, I get it because it's kind of like, no, because I also had crushes on like people from like the golden age of Hollywood who were long dead. So. Yeah, I guess. I don't, so I don't but know. To me, the it, movie, is, it is weird. The movie doesn't weird. do a good enough job. No, Establishing no. why no. he is supposed to be funny. Why right, is right. it funny? I think the only reason it's supposed to be funny is in 1995. And when you're a teenager, you kind of stick your nose up. Especially these kids, these teens, these the cool yeah. teens, the slacker cool youth would sometimes <laughs> sort of stick their nose up in the air about this old pappy bastard music, right? <laughs> pappy bastard music, I love it. <laughs> and that that's that seems to be the only joke. Mm-hmm. And just it's not funny, and it goes on. No. This Rex Manning story goes on forever, and then when he's out of the picture. The, the, the movie like seems to like run, start running out of gas, and it's like, well, yes. what do we do now? What do we do now? Right? Because yes, it start- we gotta wrap up. Yeah. What do we do now? And then when you get to this like Beatles style concert, Renee Zellweger is gonna overcome her fear of singing in public, and she's gonna sing like the Beatles on the roof of this. And here's the other thing. Okay, I know I'm bitching about this movie, but. <laughs> The guy who owns the store, he says, my dad started this record store. He has some sort of crazy idea about, like, music, bringing people together, or whatever the fuck he says, right? And he's yep. looking to sell his dad's store to Tower Records for millions of dollars. Yes. This historic, popular record store. Okay. <laughs> but he's not going to do that because... Anthony, whatever the fuck his name is. What's his name in the movie? Uh, Joe. Joe. Because they, they play the song, Hey Joe. Yeah, Joe, the store manager. <laughs> so on the nose. Wants to give him 10 grand? He's going to take 10 grand <laughs> as a down payment for him to buy the store out? He would just say, I don't care whether you have the 10 grand or not. Go fuck yourself. I'm selling the Tower Records. Right. And then they're going to raise all this money through having this concert in the middle of the night and wherever the fuck this is supposed to be. And they're going to have their pl- play music and have, come on in to the record store, folks. Save the store. Save the empire. Save the empire. Why? There's no way that this would work. There's no way. There's no way. And on top of that, it's so tacked on. It's like a feel-good ending it, it, it all comes out of nowhere. It just happens, and the movie's over. <laughs> if halfway, if if okay, if the plot of this movie had been the slacker loser teenagers have to figure out a way to save yes. this historic record store, yes, that's and then what it should have been. crazy shit happens along the way of them yes. trying to pull off this event. That's a movie. <laughs> that's a story. And that's a movie I want to see. Yes. <laughs> That's a story, and it could be on cocaine, or it could be on edibles. <laughs> I don't give a shit, but that's a story. I don't, yes. you know what I'm saying? There's yes, no um, story really. here. No. Not one you care about. No, this movie <laughs> sucks. The yeah, only the, redeeming uh, value of it is that you get to look at this bygone era of 
white teen culture of what white teens were like in the mid nineties and how they dressed <laughs> and how they talked. And that's it. That's the only, it only has like an aesthetic value on that mm-hmm. level. And then beyond that, it's, it's, it's a, it's a worthless movie. It's terrible. <laughs> so yeah, the, ugh, I mean, the acting is bad. The dialogue is bad. The story is bad or non-existent. I, I think there is something I, it kind of similar, similarly to you. I think there is something else that's worthwhile here there because I know this is a cult classic. Yes. I know people who love this yeah. film, who love the Rex Manning day memes. They post them on Twitter, yes. post them on Instagram. Like it, and I'm, I don't get it, obviously, because I don't like this movie. But what I will say is I read a really fantastic article at Brightwall Dark Room where someone waxed poetic about this film. And they talked about why they loved it so much and what it meant to them. And while I, I don't personally have that experience, I can understand what they're saying. And they talk about how this film really captures how music is such an important element in teens lives Mm -hmm. as a way to escape. And it's such an important artistic medium. And it really does speak to a moment in time in adolescence and how adolescence never really leaves us and both the highs and the lows follow us. And I was like, wow. I was like, I really wish I'd seen the movie you saw yeah, <laughs> the person right. who wrote this article because it's an incredible article. It's incredible insight to it. And I agree with everything that they wrote. And I'm just like, yeah, this movie for me doesn't do that. But I will say, kind of thinking about that article, that essay, thinking about what you said, I think where where this film gets it right is the importance of record stores that really doesn't exist anymore. Yes. And yes, of course, there are still record stores. It's not like yeah. they're completely gone, but not the way they used to be. Yeah. They really were this haven, kind of the way that Hard Harry's radio show was for the for the kids yeah. to pump up the volume. The record store really was this safe haven for the kids in this film, as well as for people in general. And it's just, it's a bygone era, it, which, is, which is that. It goes back to what we were talking about in the last film, which is you had nowhere to be. So yes, you just exactly. went places and you loitered there. And a record store <laughs> was a place that you could loiter. And because one of the things that stuck out to me about this movie was the listener booths where you could actually yes. take yes. records or cassettes or CDs in. And I remember when record stores, even the big corporate ones had that. Yep. Yep. And so you could sample the music. Like, okay. Can I listen to that? And they have a, an opened version of whatever it was. You could go in there and listen to it before you bought it to see if you liked it. I was like, that does not exist at all anymore. And that, I, I remember being 18 with my friends in music stores and mm-hmm. spending a lot of time in there and <laughs> going through different CDs and listening to them. And, you know, and I, I remember what it was like, like trying to scrounge up money to buy a CD. What I, what I see from a lot of people who love this movie is I was a teenager working retail in yep. a place, a whether it be a video store or a record store or wherever, you know, and maybe even I worked at Tower Records, and this movie captured what it was like for a bunch of dysfunctional teens to be working <laughs> together, right? And I see a lot of people who love this movie. It's because they had a similar experience, yeah, doing this sort of job at a similar sort of place. Mm-hmm. And to the, to those people, I say fair enough. But the movie is not successful as somebody who was was a teen during this era but did not have a job at that time at a retail place like this 
it doesn't bring me into this world. It doesn't connect me with its characters. I can't mm-hmm. find a, oh, I'm this person, or I can relate. I can't relate to any of these people because yeah. they aren't people. They're just problems. Right. It, it, it's right. all of them are just, they all have problems and they, they're not developed as full people. And the scenes, right. which I think are meant to develop them as full people, some exchanges that Renee Zellweger and Liv Tyler have are so poorly written and so poorly oh handled God, and poorly acted that it, it makes you like all the characters even less. When they finally do start revealing stuff about him, you're like, oh, man, I fucking hate you people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about you. I, I hate yeah, you more now. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting because it feels like it's trying to tap into the the same kinds of archetypes the way The Breakfast Club did, like the jock, like yes. the goth girl, yeah. like, the you know, the nerd. But it's not – but the, the beauty of The Breakfast Club is that it transcends that. It actually yes. shows their humanity yes. and vulnerabilities, and this film doesn't. It, it uses those to exploit them, and it doesn't do anything interesting with them, and you're right, it just makes you dislike them. The other thing, too, that drove me bonkers about this film is the absolute – objectification of the women like oh my god i did not need to see Liv tyler's bear midriff again i did not need to see another upshot of renee zellweger's short skirt (laughs) it it drove me up a wall and i love these fashions like i like it brought me back to 90s fashion and i you know something else too thinking about it that you were saying jason about working in retail i worked in a video store at this time and so i feel like this should have spoken Mm. to me and it didn't. And it just didn't. And I get why it did for other people, but it just didn't. Did you ever me. catch a so, shoplifter yeah. and then uh, fuck, <laughs> it, fuck around with him in the break room? Also, no! also, you know, there's something kind of TV about this movie and a little bit, even though the production yes! value is very high. How fucking yes. big is that break room? <laughs> right? That break room is huge. Like every break room I have ever had has been like the size of a closet. <laughs> In a real record store of that era, because it's like a 50s record store or whatever that it's, you know, kind of kept up with the times. Yep. That would be the storage room where they keep all the records yes. and albums and everything. That'd be inventory. It wouldn't 100%. be couches and TV and pinball no. machines. And so that's where it's almost like that 70s show or something. It's it's it really a TV yeah. show where we're like, we leave this part of the set, we walk through these magic doors, we have this giant rooms because we gotta get the we gotta get the camera around this giant mm-hmm. set so everything's overbuilt. But it's a it's supposed to be a movie, and it just <laughs> there's something the whole time, and then there's like an there's the offices or upstairs, and they're like but there's like a loft office that that is, and I'm like, this is like the set of the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, but it is their sound. It's it's clearly a soundstage, is what I'm saying. Yes, and it, it has no like. I'm like, why? Why didn't they? Because if you're trying to capture youth culture, it should be a tiny ass break room with a disgusting yeah. microwave. Yeah, and somebody yes. has burnt popcorn in. 50 fucking times. It should or be, microwave pizza. Or pizza. The inside <laughs> of that microwave should be brown and black and yellow. The, the refrigerator <laughs> should have moldy pizza and, and Chinese food. And just, it should be disgusting, right? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. And then they have, a, they have like a copy room where they go to make copies. And there's like. Yes. I, th- this record store has its own separate room to make copies. That doesn't make sense to me. That would just no. be half the time here. The copier was in the fucking break room. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It, 
it's just you contrast this record store with my favorite record store in any film which is in pretty in pink with annie potts being the most amazing record store clerk ever using a staple gun to fend off a shoplifter it's amazing yeah but yeah but that looks like a real whether it is or not i don't know but it looks like a real record store it feels like a real record store because it's small and things are narrow and this is just if the way it feels so expansive it feels like it's bigger than apartments i've had yes oh yeah no you know what it does it it feels like a nickelodeon kids tv show set yes from the 90s oh you nailed it you nailed it like if, if you told me they filmed all that in that in that set, I'd be like, yeah, that's what they that's where all that was. That's where they filmed the skits for all that on Nickelodeon and Snick. Is it, Snick. <laughs> that's what it feels like. Yeah. If you yeah. know that that's the best way to summarize this movie. Empire Records is clerks for people who watch Snick. <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's definitely. what it is. I think it's apropos. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that being yeah. said, I give it a, I, I, I put five bucks on this. I think this is a $5 value. It is my number two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can see where this is going. <laughs> what you, what, what, what's your value for it? Where do you put it? What's your so ranking? This is also my number two and mine is for $4 and 80 cents. We're so close. Yep. So close. All right. <laughs> Let's move on to a movie that has a staggering 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. How? 1999's <laughs> New Waterford Girl. Listener, don't tune out. I know you've never heard of this. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> In the tiny sea-swept town of New Waterford, there lived a dreamer by the name of Mooney. But the dreamer dreamt only of escape. I don't have a room. I sleep in the hall, remember? Nice room. How'd you like it if I told all the boys you tried to jump me? Fine. If a guy says it's his belt buckle poking you, it isn't. New Waterford Girl was directed by Alan Moyle. It was written by Trisha Fish. Now, here's the thing. Uh, the Lady Juan always says, feminism means women can do things badly, too. The last yeah, she's two, right about that. The last two movies were written by women, uh, Empire Records and this one, and uh, they both <laughs> stink, so these two women wrote terrible scripts. <laughs> this movie was released September 19th, 1999 at TIFF. It was released May 30th, 2000 in Canada on limited release. It had a box office of $774,000. Nova Scotia's Natalie Portman manipulates a troubled teen into physically assaulting her neighbors in the name of Christ. (laughs) Indie films, especially in the 90s, loved quirky white girls from shitty poor white families. Yes. They, this movie. Okay, let me open it up to you like this. <laughs> I got Manny and Low vibes. All like, remember we watched Manny and Low? It's like, oh. fuck. They got another Manny I and Low. Ever, 
I know. How could I ever forget Manny and Low? It's burned on my brain. This is another Manny and Low. It really there is. is this really Toronto. Is. We talked about it. There is this film festival white independent film aesthetic. It's it's in the dialogue. It's in the direction. It's in the settings. It's in the characters. It's in the acting. And people love this shit in the nineties. Mainstream <laughs> critics couldn't get enough of this. They were telling you that Armageddon was garbage, and you should have the and the Matrix was. Ho hum! You should be watching New Waterford Girl. They <laughs> they loved this shit. They ate it up with a spoon. And I've ne- I've seen hardly any of those types of movies that actually were actually good 20, 30 years later. So many of them are not good. They were just different. <laughs> they were different from mainstream movies at the time. I think if you're a critic, the, the, the risk that you run into is you see so much sameness that anything that's just different, you're like, oh, they must be good. But now, 20 years later, we have a, di- <laughs> we have a different, we're inundated with a different type of mainstream movie than we were in the 90s, right? Right, right. So now, I think we can, honestly, I think we can more objectively look back at some of these independent films of the 90s and realize they sucked. <laughs> that they were poorly directed, that they were poorly acted, that they were poorly written, and that they're all the same, and that they're just cliche ridden. Just they just stink. And this is another one of these movies that <laughs> it just stinks. This movie is this movie was unbearable. This was a this was so <laughs> hard to get. I don't care if you go to New York. What the fuck are you gonna do in New York? That's what I was saying. This girl reads poetry. We all read poetry. What are you going to do in New York? What does poetry have to do with New York? Oh, I'm going to go to this school. How are you going to pay for it, bitch? How are you going to pay for it? That's what I want to say. Did she have a scholarship? Yeah, that the teacher she may have been fucking her who wanted to fuck her. Oh. That's a whole plot point. I got you a scholarship because I want to fuck you. Oh, my God. By the way, I just want to say I called that before that even happened. I was like, wow, Andrew McCarthy is the only redeeming thing of this movie. Uh, He's quite charming. And I'm like, there's something really creepy. He's going to try to fuck her or they are having a relationship or something. And, of course, that's what happens. Of course. So let me ask you this question. Yes. I love Lady Bird. How do you feel about Lady Bird? Oh, love it. I love Lady Bird. Why does Lady Bird work and not feel like 10 million other movies that it could be just like? Because for two reasons, Saoirse Ronan is an incredible actor and because Greta Gerwig is an outstanding superlative director. That's why. She's a great writer. She's a great director. That's why. There's an alternative world where Lady Bird is just another new Waterford girl. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I've seen this film a lot. Yes. Like there, there yes. are many, many iterations of this film where you have a girl in a small town who hates where she lives, hates her life, and wants to get out to the big city. Um, Mickey and the Bear is another kind of recent one that's very similar, just kind of thematically. Mm-hmm. But it is an excellent, excellent film. And yeah, but that's the thing. This this film, the only redeeming thing I will give it is it's got Andrew McCarthy, who is charming, even though he's a lecherous creep. Yes, and. It also, I think the cinematography is okay. I thought it was terrible. At least, that <laughs> <laughs> was terrible. I think it's okay. I think this is a very badly made that... movie. <laughs> oh, I agree. Let me. I will say, I think it's okay because they're on location and Nova Scotia is really beautiful. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't think the shots are actually composed. There you go. Well. There you go. Okay, so the setting is beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So ba- it looks nice on camera. <laughs> Balaban, who plays Mooney, the lead actress of this this movie, is mm-hmm. Natalie Portman meets Winona Ryder meets Kira Knightley, and she can't help that because that's just what her face looks like. And you can definitely see that there's a Winona Ryder thing going on here. She's trying to be Winona Ryder to some extent. Yeah. So I didn't know anything about her. I've never seen her before. I hope to never see her again. <laughs> um, she she, ha- she hasn't had much of a career outside of Canada and Canadian TV. So I don't know her. I don't know her from anybody. So I like I wrote down in my notes. This woman looks like Natalie Portman. And I was like, no, she kind of looks like Winona Ryder. And I'm like, no, she kind of looks like Kira Knightley. <laughs> just depends on the angle of her face. And another time she just yeah. looks like herself. I'm like, wow, what the fuck? So then I go to her IMDb. And then like the number one trivia thing about her is often confused with Natalie Portman. <laughs> I'm thinking she wrote that herself. Where, where, where in the right. world is Leona Balaban being confused <laughs> with Natalie Portman at at the at a grocery store no. in Newfoundland, right? Like where are people like it. Natalie? I don't believe that <laughs> she does look like her, but who is often confusing her? Right? I don't believe <laughs> it. That's why I don't believe those IMDb trivia things where you often are not sourced. I don't trust. Them. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I don't trust it either. And like when you're like claim to fame is that you kind of resemble another actress to the same age. Yeah, that's not It's good. not great. And she's no, not I mean, great in this. She's not good no, in this movie. No. Because I was going to say, Kira Knightley also looks like Natalie Portman. Yes. Because they, you yes, know. Yes, do- she doubled in, for her, yes. Exactly, yes. exactly, as Amadala, And they do look kind of similar, but they both are good actors in their own Yeah, way. oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, this, this poor young woman was terrible. <laughs> Every, just terrible. The acting is, a, <laughs> it's abysmal. It's bad. It's abysmal. Yes. Wow. Like, <laughs> wow. This is, you know what this ended up feeling like? Wow. I was like, what, this reminds me of something. And you may be just a smidge, maybe not, but just a smidge too old for this. Oh! This reminded me of a poor, oh. poorly made episode of Pete and Pete. Remember the Avengers oh, of I, Pete I and Pete? I am too old for that. Yeah. <laughs> so Pete and Pete. I was so offended. And then I'm like, no, I am too old you know for what, that. Pete I remember the show. Yeah. Yes, so I weird. Do. So quirky. You know, everything about it was so strange. One of the kids had a, uh, Toby Huss played one of the kids' personal superheroes, Artie, the strongest man in the world, who wore pajamas, who wore like, uh, who wore matching pajamas, but no underwear. (laughs) He was like, strongest man (laughs) in the world. (laughs) Pipe. And he would, his arts nemesis was a bowling ball. And he would fight a bowling ball in the front yard. The mom had a metal plate in her head that would sometimes... Like things would stick what? to her head. Oh, you, yeah, yeah. I gotta, I gotta get you some episodes of Pete and Pete to watch. Yeah, you do. Because you're gonna, this, this, yeah. This movie is a unfunny, <laughs> poorly made episode of Pete and Pete. <laughs> like the whole thing of like her teen neighbor from New York is there because her dad went to prison, but her dad's a boxer, and God, because it's a super Catholic town, God oh may be God. anointing her to knock out liars. <laughs> she can knock out grown men. This is not a joke. This is the plot of this movie. God has given her a power to knock out grown men, even though she's a tiny teen girl, mm-hmm. but only if they're liars. Yes. 
And so then Mooney, who is not Natalie Portman, <laughs> wreaks havoc on this community by getting this, this sad girl next door to just go around and start beating the shit out of people or threaten to beat the shit out of people. And then it ends up with there's a boxing match between a teen girl and a grown man and the whole town. I'm like, what, what am I watching? Oh my God. Well, you, <laughs> it's you all for this girl to go to fucking art school. What is this? All to fake her pregnancy <laughs> yeah. so she can go to art school. But by the way, I knew, I knew I was in trouble watching this as soon as there was terrible narration. Yes. Terrible narration. And there was a, wedding and a wake in one to save money and i was like this movie thinks it's being quirky that's and absurd it that's it for, that's in my for some kind of appeal and it is just stupid it is stupid and i'm pissed off at it that is a hundred percent that's a hundred percent of my notes because you can Yay. tell i know you know what they think they're doing yes you know you can get the sense of how clever they think they're being. Yeah. That yep. we're gonna put the this absurd situation, which is a funeral slash wedding. <laughs> and there here's the thing: there is a script in which that's funny. You could sure. make it absurdly wryly funny in yep. a very like that almost feels like Britcom. It almost feels like British comedy. You know, yep, I, I don't yep. wanna immediately go to four weddings and a funeral, but like there's there is yeah. a but that works in that. And I know what they're trying to yes. do. They're trying to say, okay, well, in Nova Scotia and this predominantly Irish Catholic village, sea village, these are, there is all like conservative, like very prim and proper. Um, uh, uh, like, I don't know what the right word for it, but like very uh, sort of flat, bland whites <laughs> who are all <laughs> drunks, but they're, you know, they're all, you know what I mean? Like that stiff upper yeah. lip kind of a thing, right? They're Irish Catholic yes. in Canada. Yes. yes. Right. Yes. So they're very, very reverent to yes. Jesus and Mary. and. So yes, then the idea of, of having like a, a wake or a funeral and a wedding at the same time and da 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 Like you, you could see where that would be quote unquote funny, but it is not funny. No. And but as we're talking, it kind of reminds me, not that there's a wedding, but it is about um, a Shiva. Shiva Baby is yes. a hilarious comedy that takes kind of, you know, morbid humor yeah. and and actually makes it really funny and really moving. And so that you're right. There is there is a movie where this could possibly work, but it almost never works when you just do weird for the sake of weird. There's something that is funny about trying to maintain decorum in the face of absurdity. Yes. That's what's yes. funny. Is that we're gonna Absolutely. we're gonna keep with the decorum no matter what. Nobody's yes. gonna break, no matter how <laughs> absurd this gets. And that is right. funny, right? Because it's out of place. You're mm -hmm. uh, it, it's the 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 prim and proper following of decorum is out of place in the face of all this absurdity. And yes. if there was ever a time you should break from tradition, this is it, but they're not going to, and that's what makes it funny. That move this movie just whiffs. Every time it tries to do that, it, it just misses the misses the gag every single time. Absolutely, I I couldn't I couldn't agree. And the more. dad, yeah. the dad's supposed to be funny because he's not funny. Oh my god, <laughs> not funny at all, and horrible no. performance. Whoever that guy is, oh yeah, delivers a terrible performance. And it, it really, he's a one note joke. The one note joke is he's supposed to be this devout Irish Catholic who just says "goddamn" all the time. 
who's right. constantly blaspheming. So that's supposed to be funny. And like, oh, well, he's so religious, but he can't stop <laughs> blaspheming. It's like, that's a, that's not a joke. That that, that there's no, no, it's just a thing. It's a fact. Right, right. The guy says, goddamn, a bunch. Okay, that's not funny. And? and right. Well, he's Catholic. Okay. And? <laughs> and honestly, like, it goes to the point of where it's almost like an anti-Catholic movie. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? It's like, yep. at a certain point, it's like, you're just knocking these people down. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, all these Irish Catholics, they're all drunks. Look at them. Look at them. They're drunks. And it's just like oh. anti-Irish, anti-Catholic. It's like, what? 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 It doesn't feel... Movies like this, it has to be like the writer is coming from a place and and the performances. We're coming from a place that we're inside this world. We know this world. So it's almost like we're lampooning ourselves. And I think that answers my own question to you. One of the other reasons why (laughs) Lady Bird works so well is because it was semi-autobiographical, especially in the the place where it was set and the time in which it was set. So it feels more like even when it is making maybe some derisive sort of comments about certain things, it's mm-hmm. done in a loving sort of way yes. almost where it's, it's, it's like being a part of a family to where it's like, well, we can make fun of each other, but nobody right, but else you can. can't. Yeah. Exactly. Because exactly. underneath the angst and the whatever is, there is love. Exactly. This movie has right. no love for these characters. It has no love for these no. people. It has no love for this place. It has no love for the mm-hmm. setting. It, it it doesn't culminate in you know what at the end of the day, yeah Mooney's because the other thing is Lady Lady Bird fully acknowledges that Lady Bird is an asshole. <laughs> and she we see a lot of different sides of her and she's got an asshole side, and there that's part yeah, she's of her a complex person. Yes, and that's part of her reckoning in the movie, yeah. right? It's like oh my god yeah my mom is fucked up but I'm really just kind of like my mom. And I'm fucked up in a lot of the same ways. And she has to kind of reckon with that. And it kind of ends up being what the movie's about and little steps each of them take toward each other. This movie has none of that. And it's supposed to, because we're supposed to get to that reveal where the mom (laughs) realized she hadn't been pregnant and and the whole time and she wasn't going to a convent. She was secretly going to New York and her mom helped get her out and wanted her to have a good life. And, but it just doesn't work. There's no payoff to it. No, because you don't care. You don't care about Mooney. You don't care about any of the characters. And you're so right. It doesn't come from a place of reverence for these people or this community. It's just making fun of them. And it just, it ends up feeling very awkward and not in a funny way, but just very like uncomfortable. Like, ew, I don't want to spend time with these people. And I don't, (laughs) like, I don't want to be here. And it feels very vile. There's something vile. Yes. 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 It just feels very creepy. And yes. Also, why is this set in the seventies? And normally I don't care, but why is it set at that time? It has no no meaning. It has no meaning. There's no reason. There's no sociopolitical context. There's nothing about it that is, there's just nothing. The only thing I could, the whole time I was like, because it it also, sometimes it's, it's very evident that it's the seventies and other times it could just, could have been 1999. And so it's inconsistent in its place and setting. And I think the only thing I can think of is that one, probably the person who wrote it was probably of that age as a coming they're telling their coming of age story or of a similar era. That'd be my guess. The other thing is my guess is that uh, Roman Catholicism 
and this sort of strict, tight-knit uh, Irish community that, that it was more so the dominant culture in the 70s in this part of Nova Scotia would be my guess. And so it, maybe it wouldn't have made sense in the 90s because maybe things had opened up. And, you know, so you wanted to tell what it was like to come from a more repressed version of this village or this part of Nova Scotia. That maybe. But it doesn't translate to having any meaning no, to. No. And it's, yeah, I, it, it's, I mean, it, it, it flopped in its own country. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, I mean, that, yeah, that tells you. I mean, not, and that's the thing, like, not that everything that flops is bad because sometimes really brilliant films yes. do fail. But yeah, that should tell you something. <laughs> that even within the, the intended mm. audience. How does this have such land. a high, high marks? Why do people like this so much? I, I I don't understand it. I just don't. Because you're 100% right. Like, as much as, like, superhero movies, because you and I have talked about this before on this podcast. Mm-hmm. As much as superhero movies are, like, a dime a dozen, this movie's a dime a dozen. This yes, independent-style yes, yes. movie about everything we talked about. Quirky girl and quirky things happen to her, and she's in a repressive town, and she's got to get out because <laughs> she likes art. Yep. And she may does has funny voices and she's weird. She might be a <laughs> she might have borderline personality disorder. That's like we don't know. We don't know. And half the time they end up shaving their head in the goddamn movie or cutting their hair or oh, some shit. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. If she, We've if seen she, this movie a thousand times. If she isn't a cutter, <laughs> if she isn't a borderline, oh, then God. she has cancer. <laughs> That's the other thing. The nineties love giving women cancer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> she has yeah. some kind of cancer and nobody knows and she's not quite a manic pixie dream girl because you probably won't like her <laughs> jesus it's like oh my god and i hate it i hate it because it's just it it feels like a movie it's like reveling in how not mainstream it is and yeah. it's like that isn't yeah. enough no, no, but I will say, because you mentioned this earlier about how critics see so many films, and and yes, it is 100% true, Yeah, you see so many films a year, you are just hungering for anything that is different, and so... I can imagine at that time if this really felt different, but at the same time, I don't know how it felt different yep. because one, it's so poorly constructed <laughs> and two, <laughs> that just right there, just the poor construction yeah. should just be like a huge red flag. But then also this isn't a unique film, even in the nineties, no. like, it's not a unique film now. It's not a unique film. Then <sighs> the only thing I can say, the only, only remotely unique thing about this is that it's dealing with abortion and a lot of films at that time were not. And even still nowadays, nowadays, while we do have many more films that do deal with abortion head on, it's still not that many. So that's really the only unique thing happening here, but it's still a terrible movie. It's still a terrible movie. Yeah. (laughs) Still terrible. Anyway, you slice it. (laughs) Buck 50 for me. And it is my number four. It was almost my worst of the week. Oh. But it just missed out. <laughs> Buck 50. Wow. What about you? Wow. So this was my number three movie, my third movie. And mine, I did $2.10 because I liked the Nova Scotia landscape and it talks about abortion. And it's female-centric. <laughs> so I gave it a couple extra. <laughs> Got a little little oomph for that. But other yeah. than that, oh, no, it's terrible. It's terrible. Well, speaking of another terrible film, let's talk about 2001's Exchange, which currently has a (laughs) 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. I know. (laughs) 
What did you ask him? Uh, why don't you tell him, Mr. Lister? That's Darren. He's my personal trainer. That's you, in that buff body. And this is your trainer. You exchange with your trainer. Well, why should I bust my ass for good abs? Let him do it. Welcome to a world where travel is possible by exchanging minds. They're having a press conference in two hours. They're in San Francisco. We're in New York. You'll have to exchange. But I don't switch bodies, you know that. You got no choice. Everything's set. Are you ready? Not really. Travel well, Mr. Toffler. Welcome to San Francisco. Take a whole new look at yourself. Where the possibilities are unlimited. Oh, go ahead. Indulge yourself. What do you think he's doing with your body right now? But the reality is unimaginable. It appears your guest has absconded with your body. What? And in the meantime, we will give you a loner. These are clones. We call them Jeffs. Genetically engineered facsimile. No, these things, they don't last more than a couple days. Let's try to be positive, shall we? Now, his mind is trapped in a clone. You are not going to believe what's been happening to me. His body is on loan to a madman. Press this button. The whole world changes. He's a corporate terrorist. My body's been stolen by a terrorist? Who do you think steals bodies, Mr. Toffler? And his time... I have 47 hours to live. ...is running out. I need your help or I'm dead. Showtime. Exchange was directed, of course, by Alan Moyle. This was written by a man. It was written by Christopher Pelham. It's the triumphant return, is it, though, of Kyle MacLachlan. <laughs> Last heard in Inside Out. It's also the triumphant return of Kim Coates. Last in Resident Evil Afterlife. This movie, it's not a triumphant return, but it does star Janet Kidder, who is the niece of Margot Kidder. And that the, the one, like, female CEO. The whole time, I'm like, this woman reminds me of somebody else. She sounds like somebody else. I looked her up. It's Margot Kidder's niece. So, uh, and when you once you realize that, you're like, oh yeah, she's got a little bit of Margot in her. December twentieth, two thousand, this thing came out on a budget of not available. It made not available because if I'm not mistaken, I think this was direct to Canadian television. So, uh, okay. In the future, people <laughs> travel around via body swapping into progressively worse actors. <laughs> If you see a Trimark home video symbol, you're in trouble. You are in trouble. If you if if you are of the the video store era, you know Trimark. And if Trimark is distributing the film, it's a terrible film. <laughs> Nine <laughs> times out of ten. And if it has Stephen Baldwin in it. Woo-hoo. The question I ask is, I think at one point this movie says starring Stephen Baldwin. Does any movie really star Stephen Baldwin? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's start here. George is Alexa and Google Home, and there are drones in this movie, and there are technological elements that now 22, 21, 22 years later, this movie was predictive of of what the future would kind of be like i will say that that is good i will say that i think the idea the central premise of the movie is a good sci-fi premise right it's almost a classic sci-fi premise what if this reluctant person it, it really feels like a philip k dick novel or something or short story where a reluctant person is for business purposes 
because the, the world has been separated into a permanent business class, which I think what they call them, they call them the uh, corpies. corpies, right? Yep. Of basically like corporate drones and or b- corporate billionaires. And then there's everybody else. And rather than travel, rather than get in a plane, rather than do, I mean, really they, they, should have just done video conferencing, <laughs> but right? rather, rather than doing Zoom, what they decided that the way you could travel <laughs> is you can basically swap bodies with people, and or clones if you if you wanted to, and you go into somebody else's body and you go do your business meeting this that whatever, and then you can come back, or you could take if you're super rich, you could take vacations in the bodies of the poor's, and mm-hmm. you could do whatever the fuck you want to do with their body because it's not your body up to a certain level right right there's a sci-fi premise in there there's a story in there it's talking about class and class structure and da 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 da. and a guy doesn't want to do it but he's forced to do it for his job he does it then you know it's almost like uh like a hitchcockian thing where he ends up in the middle of uh you know he's a wrong place wrong guy the innocent man who doesn't know what's happening there's so many different angles you could have gone with this premise to make a very interesting fun even a fun b action sci-fi movie this movie does none of those things (laughs) and i honestly i would say for like the first 20 25 minutes it's not a great movie but i was like it had me i'm like okay i'm gonna see what they do with this i'm gonna see what they do with this because it's like it's 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 knowing it's for tv knowing it's 22 years old i kind of put it into the the tier of like the outer limits for when showtime rebooted the outer limits you remember that I do. Yeah. It's like an Outer Limits episode from Showtime. And I'm like, okay, that if I understood it as that, it could be mm-hmm. kind of fun. And it kind of is. And then it stops being that. <laughs> and it becomes something else. And it goes on forever and ever. And it ends up being one of the worst things I've ever watched in the history of the show. Oh, yeah. And this is almost unwatchable. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, because it almost it almost goes into porno territory. Oh my god, why are there so many weird sex scenes? Very weird sex scenes. Like, so weird. They're well, so okay. weird. One, I, one sex scene, I understand. Or going to a sex club, I understand. Sure. Because you're sure. you're selling this idea that these rich people are taking people's bodies and they're having fucking orgies with them, you know, like Republicans do. And they're doing all of this <laughs> stuff. And there are these underground sex clubs and whatever else, right? Like, because yes. really, that would happen. If you could swap buys with people and go on vacation, you'd be doing drugs, you'd be fucking random people because you don't care. <laughs> it's not, there's no consequence for you. Right, right. If, and so it's, if you, and again, if you want to get across, like, in this world, there are no consequences for the wealthy. Okay, I understand that. I get that. I get what you're going for. So mm-hmm. one erotic scene, one sex scene, one sex club kind of a thing. So, some woman kind of ponies up to you at the bar, wants to have a <laughs> gangbang with you. I understand. <laughs> but from that point forward, it's just random. Yeah. Sex scenes. <laughs> And random to the point of in the middle of we're being chased and there's a ticking time clock and we got to figure out why <laughs> Stephen Baldwin's going to die or whoever the <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin, who's now Stephen Baldwin, is going to die or so-and-so who's Kyle McLaughlin, who's now Stephen Baldwin. I, I don't even remember who the original guy is, but... Kim Coates. Kim Coates, that's right. Kim Coates, who's, yeah, who's... 
Kyle McLaughlin, who becomes Stephen Baldwin, <laughs> is going to die. Because his body is going to melt. They mm -hmm. stop in the middle of him rushing to get help for him to fuck this woman. And it's not even that he's fucking her. It's almost that she's raping him. Because he's like, oh, I'm not really here for that. And she's like, oh, come on, sugar pie. Come on, fuck oh, me. Fuck yeah. me, sugar pie. And he's like, no, 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 no. And the next thing you know, they fucked. And you're like, did that woman rape that guy? <laughs> no, he says nothing happened. So who the hell knows? We see her tits, though. We sure do. But he stops her. We see so many titties in this movie. So many boob shots. <laughs> that are, they're not, they're not spectacular. They're not shot. They're not shot erotically. No. They're, it's just flat shots no. of women yes. awkwardly taking their tops off. Yes. And, this is the most unerotic sex I've ever oh seen. Oh my God. Oh. Here, here, here's a question for you. Okay. This is going to yes. sound ridiculous, but why not reboot movies like this? I know the answer. <laughs> no, I know the answer. I know the answer is because the IP has no value. Right. But to yeah, me, there is a kernel question. of an idea here that could I, make listen, a great movie or series I or something. I agree. I agree. And actually, not so much this exact premise, but the body swapping idea was a great, one of my favorite underrated sci-fi films, Ad, Jennifer Fang's Advantageous, where there's a procedure when your body is too old, you swap it out for a younger yeah. model. And it's a great premise. It's a great film. And it's very indie. No budget. Yeah. And I'm like, that could have been this film. This film could have had really interesting things to say and interesting commentary, like you were saying on class. And it just, it doesn't do anything. So I agree. I would love to see a remake of this film that actually looks good that actually has good actors in it and not Stephen Baldwin <laughs> and doesn't have weird sex scenes that are not erotic and are just superfluous. Oh, yes, I would like to see that. Okay, movie. so imagine a reboot of this idea, right? But you have actual actors and like, even maybe even some movie stars in it, right? Yeah, yes. And then so Let's imagine if your main character is like Tom Holland, who then becomes Jason Momoa, who becomes Anne Hathaway, who becomes Morgan Freeman, who becomes, you know? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You get two or three yeah. or four a-list actors, but of different genders, ethnicities, yep. gender identities, backgrounds. You could do stuff about code switching where all of a sudden yes. now I'm this, you know, I've, I'm, I, you know, this white guy is now in a black man's body and how does he fit into the world and what is his experience in the world as a black man and now he's a woman yep. and now he's a queer person yep. and now he's, you could do, and it could be, it could, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be like super quote unquote woke, you know, but it could be a trans allegory. doesn't have to be, yep. could be about body dysmorphia. doesn't have, yep. but doesn't have to be. It could, and it, you could still have yep. the action elements, you know, there's so many different so many. themes, yes. class, action. gender, race. <laughs> it's all there. And you could, yeah. you could fixate on any of them or none of them or yeah. do something. And this movie just fucking shits the bed. <laughs> I know. Oh my God. Your idea is that it keeps making me think of other films. Like it's very matrixy. Yes. It also is uh Brandon Cronenberg's possessor, yeah. which possessor, that is exactly yeah. the, yeah, that's exactly the premise is going into different bodies to kill people. And Andrea Riceboro has an existential crisis in another body and it's amazing. So yes. And, I, and here's you the, totally do here's that. the other thing. Even if you wanted to skip all of the social commentary and just make a good action thriller, you mm -hmm. could, 
Because again, it's like that Hitchcock premise or a Philip K. Dick premise, which is the reluctant guy has yes. to do it. And it turns out his body gets stolen by an assassin. Mm-hmm. And now he's being blamed for crimes that he's not committing because somebody else has hijacked his body and this guy's killing people. And now he's got a ticking time clock because he's going to die if he doesn't get back to his body. But he's got to stop the right. guy from killing the president or whoever the fuck he's trying to kill. I want to see this movie. That's an interesting <laughs> movie, right? Yes, I want to see all of those movies, actually. They and all would, look great. You would have no idea. And he doesn't have any idea who's in his body. It could be anybody. Right, right, all he knows is right. he's a killer. And so many twists and turns. And he could, could go in a more like, almost like a total recall kind of a yeah. vibe or it could be yeah like a horror direction yeah a horror direction or, yeah there's yep. a, here's what i'm saying bottom line is there is a mainstream mm-hmm. hit movie premise inside of this movie agreed and and if anything it would have been so far ahead of its time because they have in 2001 they've got drones They've got smart homes and all this sort of shit. And if they had a really cool fucking premise uh, that they actually executed well on top of that, this movie it would have been a cult classic. Yes. And it probably would have been rebooted by now. Probably. But, yeah. but the movie just after the first, like it's, it, it, there's not a lot of money in it. So it is a cheap, it's a, it's a cheap directed video movie or direct to TV. But after the first, honestly, once Kyle McLaughlin's out of the movie, the whole fucking thing falls apart. From- Absolutely. That, yeah, that's when it becomes completely unwatchable. It already went from being really shitty to completely unwatchable. Yes. Yeah. And, I, and, and I, you hate to say that because it's like, I don't mean to just dump on Stephen Baldwin because it isn't, it isn't just that it's entirely his fault, although he is terrible. <laughs> it's also that like somehow the production value got worse. Yes. Somehow the movie yeah. looks worse. The dialogue is worse. Everything, it's like, he's terrible. He's hes a way worse actor than Kyle McLaughlin, okay? Yes. But it's like they ran out of money. And, and then Kyle, it, it, it's almost as if Kyle McLaughlin was supposed to be in the entire film. And they, right. the production ran out of money and they shut down production. And they're like, well, since he's swapping bodies, <laughs> we'll just get somebody cheaper. And he will say he swapped to that guy's body. And we'll, we'll just do whatever we can to finish the movie. And that's what it seems like. Right. And I just, it's terrible. It's the last, I don't know, half of this movie is, you're right, it's borderline unwatchable. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing happens and everything's happening. And then also, I, I the movie's unfinished. Because it just ends. Yeah. Remember? It you're just right. yep. ends. Yep. Where the female like CEO, yeah, the female CEO, who's the yeah. real villain of the whole movie, yep. never interacts with anybody but the one guy. The one guy, he gets blown up by a drone. The movie ends with her trying to call his cell phone and it going straight to voicemail and then freeze frame. Yep. That's not an ending. <laughs> That's an I give up ending. That's doesn't doesn't it feel like something went horribly wrong in this production? Like yes, they, that they ran yes. out of money or something, <laughs> right? It does, or that there's a different cut somewhere else or something. <laughs> Definitely something. <laughs> Is this one of the worst movies you've watched for binge movies? Yes, <laughs> this movie and the next movie are the two worst things I've ever seen in my life, and for <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, well, 
Let's not fix it on this <laughs> any longer. I give this a dollar. And maybe that's generous. I think that is generous. <laughs> oh, I think it's only a dollar for me because the premise was so. Because the idea. Yeah, the idea. Yeah. I can get behind that. I was like, God damn, this that. is a good sci-fi idea. Yeah. I love yeah, sci-fi. I, that's a, I just love sci-fi movies. You know, and oh fuck, yeah. man. What a what a what a piece of shit. <laughs> so this is a this this is the worst of the the worst of this sponsored episode. It's it's number five for me. Uh just <laughs> just barely. Yeah, so the, it's funny that you say that, like that I gave it 75 cents. <laughs> And the reason it was 75 cents was I was like, oh, I like sci-fi and there's a good idea here. And I like Kyle MacLachlan and Kim Coates can be a good actor. Can be. So, yeah. yeah. Actually, the last thing I saw him and he was great. See for me. Good horror movie. Okay. Um, But yeah. So I was like, okay, 75 cents. But yeah, this is my number four. <sighs> Not the worst. Not the worst. <laughs> now I'm confused because I don't know how if you're following along at home. The next one, the last one's going to be my number three. And I don't really know how it got there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's let's move along to 2007's Weirdsville, which currently has a 58% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm shocked it's that high. Are you willing to renounce all loyalty to God and Jesus Christ? Do you swear allegiance to the Prince of Darkness? I do. It's I swear, Todd, not I do. You're not getting married. What is your business? Is the 1700 you owe me? Oh my God, but you can't pay. What? Why would a millionaire keep his money at home? He's a hippie. And I guess hippies don't believe in banks. <laughs> Take me, for instance. In my mind, I'm 6'4", 190 pounds. Dex, you're the quiet, introspective one. Yeah. Royce is the idea man. Look, I'm going to take a hit. And I'm going to figure out what to do. Yeah. You know what your problem is? You have no ambition. She's dead. What do you mean she's dead? I mean, she's not alive, man. This was written by William Winnickers. Now, I, I was like, I gotta look up who the fuck wrote this. <laughs> Here are here's some of his other titles. <clears throat> you ready? I'm ready. Vampire Dog. What is Vampire Dog? Step Dogs. <laughs> what? What? Pups United. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> Treasure Hounds. <laughs> <laughs> Buckley's Chance, which may or may not have a dog in it. And he did a family-friendly uh, football movie that I think has a, a dog that plays football called Full Out. <laughs> wow. That's the, that is the majority of the rest of his career, is that he's only written movies that go straight to video <laughs> that star dogs. But before all that, the first movie he ever wrote... Ooh was 2007's Weirdsville, which is the triumphant return of Scott Speedman, last seen in Triple X, <laughs> State of the Union. <laughs> it's a name from the early 2000s that people don't remember, Scott Speedman. It was released January 18th, 2007. On a budget of not available, it made $9,700. <laughs> $9,000. This thing didn't break ten grand, Megan. I mean, I'm not surprised. <laughs> it's got Taryn Manning and uh, a couple other people who've done nothing in her life. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Taryn Manning's good in Orange is the New Black. 
<laughs> I, yes, that's correct. Uh, sl- slackers shaggy dog their way through a Gen X Cheech and Chong Canadian comedy adventure of mishaps. Oh. <laughs> this is supposed to be Cheech and Chong, right? I guess. This is a dark, cynical Cheech and Chong for heroin addicts. It would. It really. It really is that what it is? What if Cheech and Chong were on heroin? Yes. Yes. Stoner comedies work because pot isn't really a real drug. (laughs) Yeah, you're not wrong. (laughs) Weed is not a real drug, especially actual weed. Now, the synthetic shit that they're pumping God knows what into and lacing it with fentanyl, though, that's a drug. Right, right. And yes, I understand psychoreactive, THC. I might say it doesn't have psychoreactive properties. So does caffeine. Okay. Yes, your nervous system is affected, so forth and so on. And if you have, if you're, if you're listening to this, you're like, weed ruined my life. I believe you, and you should abstain from it. Okay. I'm not advocating for marijuana. My point is, as far as narcotics go, it or drugs, it's not a hardcore narcotic, right? It no, is, it's not the same as cocaine it, or heroin. It's not crack. Yeah. It's not crank. Right. It's not coke. It's not heroin. It's not even LSD, right? It's right. not, you know, uh, so it's funny because it's like a slight drug. It's, it's, it's these comedic characters who are getting the giggles and all this crazy shenanigans happening around them. And whether I don't really like Cheech and Chong movies, but that's why yeah. in premise they work. Yes. Because when you're a stone, when you're stoned or you're a stoner, you get hungry and you laugh or you get sleepy. That's what happens to you, right? For the most part. Mm-hmm. These are heroin addicts living in desperate, desperate, unsavory, filthy, vile, train-spotting-like conditions in Canada. Taryn Manning is a sex worker drug addict who ODs, and it's supposed to be hilarious. <gasps> uh, uh, yeah, that, is, that might be the most disgusting thing in the film. They steal drugs from drug dealers. Then he's like, if you're going, I, I'm going to kill you unless you sell some drugs and give me my money back. So rather, than, and that's supposed to be hilarious. So then they become not, not weed dealers. They become hardcore drug dealers of horrible narcotics. <laughs> and then because she is such a crippled addict, when she sees the drugs, she just does them all and dies. That is the inciting incident for the comedy. Yeah. They go to bury his gr- dead girlfriend's overdosed body at a rundown drive-in movie theater where they run into a group of occultists who are performing blood rituals to bring back an internet.com millionaire? <laughs> who's in a coma or dead or whatever. And when they spill a shit ton of human blood, it just so happens to bring back Taryn Manning. And they, so they think that Satan has resurrected this OD'd woman. And the, the, the humor of the movie is supposed to be the banter between these two stoners in between all of this and all the weird shenanigans they run into. <laughs> and it's just really grim and depressing and unfunny. Yes. 
there is a reason why heroin comedies don't exist. <laughs> This movie proves it, if nothing Stoner else. Stoner <laughs> comedy is a, is a small subgenre. Heroin comedy has been tried once by Alan Moyle <laughs> and William Winokur, or whatever the fuck his name is, <sighs> and it has never been tried again, nor should it, because the no. situations they find themselves in are too harrowing to be funny. There's nothing, like, okay, there's a moment in this movie where the one guy's like, I... I you know how I disappeared for a little while? And he's like, yeah, what happened to you, man? He's like, I kicked, I kicked, I kicked the drugs. I'm, I'm clean. I'm done. It's ruined my life. I'm never going to do drugs again. And it's played serious, right? So like a serious moment mm -hmm. in the movie. Next scene, man, he's fucking snorting coke and whatever, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, am I supposed to be laughing now at the shenanigans that hap happen? Right. Because I'm rooting for this guy to be sober and get his shit together and get out of this, this fucking garbage life that he's living. And he's just with, for no apparent reason, just doing drugs again. And it's supposed, and then it's supposed to be shenanigans. It's not funny. Yep. I don't know what else to say about this movie. It's it's <laughs> it's supposed to be funny about how oh look how chaotic this is. It's just sad. It's just really it's sad in the way that if you've ever lost like had a friend who got into heavy drugs. And they just kind of don't even look at themselves anymore. And they, their whole life is in ruins, you know, and it's, and they're like, Hey, remember when we used to party? Remember in college? And they want to talk about like how drunk they got that one time and how they shit their pants. And isn't it hilarious? And you're not 22 anymore. And you're like, it's fucking sad. That's what this movie is. Yeah. The movie is that distilled feeling of the, the, the 37 year old bartender who's still doing Coke and trying to have a party and she looks like shit now. She just looks awful. She's run herself into the ground. And she still thinks it's it's she's it's like she's 23. And it's sad. You know, you ever, you ever gone to a bar and had got that male or female bartender like that? It's and you're like, ooh. <laughs> or sat or you see that guy at the end of the bar who's like 45. He's in his oh, well, yeah. he's in his sweater, <laughs> he's got a belly, and <laughs> You know, you know what I mean? You can just tell, like, he's lived his entire life in a bar, just, like, uh, going from one night stand to one night stand, and now he's too old. Nobody wants to fuck him anymore. <laughs> he's, he's too worn down. You know? Life has beaten him down. Yeah. The bar. <laughs> a bar lifestyle. Being a bar fly has beaten him down. He Now you just... You, you don't go for being the life of the party. The, I, I'm, I'm being really serious here for a second. I know you are. There's a thin line between are. being the life of the party and being a sad old drunk. Yeah. And most people don't know when they've crossed that line. There's a certain point of which you have to grow the fuck up and be an adult and be like, I have to be a functional person. And barring substance, actual substance abuse problems, if you, you have to just moderate yourself and go live life. And this movie takes that and tries to turn it into a wacky comedy a dark yep. wacky comedy a black comedy no doubt but it's not funny it's just sad no, no. and annoying no, and, and, I, and the other guy the other guy is fucking obnoxious oh west bentley oh yeah oh my yeah, god yeah so <laughs> i just want to say i'm not laughing at your serious <laughs> moments and observations on addiction and like <laughs> morose moments yeah. it's that 
it's this movie. Like, I can't stop laughing at this movie that this movie is trying to make a heroin comedy. Like, it's just, it's so absurd. It's so awful. It's just, it's, it's laughably bad. Um, yeah, and I, I think I find at times addiction stories really fascinating. Yes. Because, yeah. and they can be, it can be really, really depressing and dark, but intriguing and compelling to see. Mm-hmm people succumb to addiction and try to overcome it and not overcome it and how it controls their lives. But that's not what this film is doing. This film is instead using a women in refrigerator trope to kick off the quote comedy. And then we're going to bring it back from the dead and it's going to be a satanic cult, but the satanic cult isn't even doing things correctly. Isn't that so funny? And we're going to have terrible dialogue and we're going to have terrible editing and we're going to rewind like it's a VHS tape. And it's just, it's so awful. This is, this is an, un, I think this is an unwatchable film. Like I watched it, but I think this is absolutely an unwatchable film. This is, I think the worst thing I've ever seen. It's terrible. It is so awful. But it's, don't, it's but bad. don't you get it? It's funny because everyone blows up at the end. Oh yeah. Great. <laughs> They want to get into the. I, I remember what they want. They want the millionaire. They want to get into his house because he's got his. He's dead, but they want to get a combination to get into a safe full right. of money. They think he has. Yes. Something and they, they, yeah, and it's what it's supposed to be. Is it supposed to be like a, an escalating series of issues, right? Where yes, they they go from owing this guy a, a sum of money to now owing him a shit ton of money to now having to deal drugs for him to having to you know, bury, bury a body and like, you know, and kill for him. And like all this sort of stuff, right. it's supposed to be get, it, Oh, the hijinks are getting wackier and wackier <laughs> and they're not, it's just not, it doesn't play like that. No, 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 no it's, t- it's tonally off. It's poorly written. It's poorly acted. The dialogue is atrocious. It's just, it's so bad on every single level. It's badly directed as well. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it is. It is painful. I found this boring. Yes, it's very boring. I felt uncomfortable. And again, not in a, I like films that make me uncomfortable, that push me out of my comfort zone or make me think about dark thoughts, make me feel bad. I actually really like that, (laughs) which that should tell you a lot about me. But this. (laughs) Megan Kearns, make me feel bad. (laughs) That's right. That's right. But it didn't make me feel bad in the right way it just made me feel like this film is gross and again not any good like body horror gross kind of way just this film is just gross it is awful it's not insightful entertaining anything no it's nothing Nothing. (laughs) so i don't understand i I don't know what my thought process was of how this is a three Whoa, I don't know. No, well, my, my, it's not $3. It's ranked as number three. Oh, it's ranked number three. I still don't know. I'm, I'm intrigued because this was my no, This was my fifth. I thought this was the worst by far. Yeah, because here's what in my notes. I, I have mostly it's just not funny. And then my next note is absolutely drags. And this movie drags. Oh. Yeah, it does. Yes. So it does. I don't know. Why did I put this so <laughs> high? Later in the void. You know what? Fuck it. Now that we've talked about it, I'm going to downgrade this <laughs> to 75 cents. Woohoo! <laughs> and it's now the worst of the week, which yeah, bumps yeah. exchange to number four in New Waterford Girl number three. So does it mean we have the exact same list now? We have the exact same list now. 
I think you've persuaded me. And I'm going to have to run Yay. new math here. So uh, summarize your thoughts on the movie. Give your score while I do some quick math here. Okay. So, I, I mean, I really don't even have many much more to say, many more insights. I thought the cinematography was atrocious. The score is abysmal. It's so bad. Like, especially comparing it to Pump Up the Volume, which has a score by um, Clint Martinez, who is great. And now you have, like, this shitty score. Oh, my God. Like, this movie was just painful to watch. I think it's just... Oh, something else, too. When Taryn Manning inhales and she smokes her cigarette, it doesn't light up and she doesn't exhale any smoke. <laughs> and I couldn't stop thinking about that. And I was like, that's this movie. This movie does not give a shit. It does not give a shit about its production, its authenticity, anything. And I was like, this sums up the movie right there. So my score is I would, I don't even know if you could pay people to take this, but I would say 25 cents. Oh, well, I'm still higher than you. I have it at you 75 are. cents. But yeah, yes. that's, I don't know, man. Uh, let's see. So I've got, I'm going to do the math real quick here. Much, much later. Alan Moyle has directed 12 feature films, if we want to call them all feature films. <laughs> what do we make of his career? Okay. Well, I think he peaked with Pump Up the Volume and it was all downhill from there. I would I I would say as far as overall quality of the movies, yes, he definitely peaked, especially because he also wrote that one. And what's interesting yes, is he doesn't yes. write any of the rest of these movies, and I, I wonder mm -hmm. why that is. I was curious about that too. Yeah, he only, he becomes like a director for hire kind of a thing, and then he just gets attached to progressively lower tier work. Right. I don't know if he developed a reputation within the industry. I don't know if he was hard to work with. You know, we, you talked earlier about he has this sort of sensibility, especially in his earlier films, about like, or even in all the way up to exchange, about like independent versus corporations and ca yes. anti-capitalist sentiment. And yet, you know, uh, there's Empire Records, which is was distributed and released by a major uh, film company. Mm -hmm. So it's like he made this like anti-corporate thing. <laughs> that's his most that's his biggest budget film at 10 million dollars right. and it definitely looks like it yeah even the, even promo of the volume was new line which wasn't a major mm -hmm. at the time but was a, a, by this point an established producer and distributor of movies and it's yes. really weird that he, it seems like he started really kind of strong and he had a voice and he had a perspective and some modicum of directorial talent and it's just I don't know what happened. I don't know. It just seems like he just kind of pissed it away. I, I, I it's, oh, like somebody needs to do like a deep dive interview with this guy and go, what happened with your career? Like, <laughs> you know, was it just because the movies that he made, because even a poem of the volume didn't do great. Right. No, it didn't. So it, is it, it found it, an audience later? Yeah. Is it that he just made flops? Is that what happened? You think that he, he's an outsider <laughs> because he's French Canadian. Yes. He's not American. He's not probably in Hollywood. He probably didn't live in Hollywood, would be my guess, right? Mm -hmm. So he's outside of the system. He's not a part of the good old boys club. And the movies he makes, they give him a little bit of money. And he has two movies that become cult classics, but that are flops. Yep. And that's yep. it. He gets two shots. It's over. And mm -hmm. maybe that's as simple as it is, is he just made movies that at the time didn't make any money. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be. It's interesting, though, thinking about was he a difficult director to work with? And I mean, he certainly could have been. From the interviews I read about the making of Pump Up the Volume, everyone who worked on that film, or well, I shouldn't say everyone, but the producers and 
and Moyle are talking about how it was such a great experience. It ran so smoothly and how they always hoped that it would run mm-hmm. that smoothly again. And it never did. So I don't know if he was difficult or not, but yeah, but it just, it, it is really strange to see this kind of peak in his career. And it just, it just, you know, like slides down and it's like, wow, it, it's very, very fascinating to I, see. I heard an artist, I heard an artist say this and I can't remember who I love to quote them and give them credit for this. But they, what they said was <clears throat> that their belief was every artist really only has so many, so much work with inside of them. Yeah. I've heard. Yeah. Right. I've heard that and, before. And yeah. that it kind of goes like Quentin Tarantino's whole thing of like, I want to quit before I lose it. Cause most directors lose the touch after a certain point in time. It's his whole premise behind I only want to make X amount of movies because he says most yeah, directors. I know, yeah, they, they I know could, that's his thing. Yeah. yeah. So you hear this this premise that, you know, people only have so much inside of them. And maybe he only had one movie inside of him. And it is pump up the volume. And it means a lot to the people it means a lot to. And that's yep. it. And we would like to think of that as failure. Right, Be- right. Because part of, boy, we're going to get real philosophical here but i love it part of capitalism is the idea that everything in life is supposed to be constantly moving up and to the right life is a spreadsheet and it's always supposed to be progressing towards better and better and better and greater and greater and more and more money or more and more return on investment and everything has to constantly be this linear line moving to more and more success and if it doesn't work that way then something's wrong with you Right. Not right. Right. And the reality is life doesn't work like that. No business really Mm -hmm. works like that. Life doesn't work like that. There's just ups and downs and everything. And so I think you look at this guy and most of his movies aren't any good. And most of them, no one's ever heard of. And so it'd be easy. And we will, we will here in a second, because I'm going to summarize his career in the dollar value. And it's low. Uh, It's, it's easy to an extent to be able to say, this guy's a failure. Alan Moyle is a failure of a director. There's another way you could flip it around in your head, which is he had one story to tell and it found its audience when that audience most needed it. And for that, as an artist, he, he, he is a success. Absolutely. Because he produced something that mattered to somebody. So that's not me just trying to find a silver lining. It's just a different perspective. Because we tend, especially when it comes to movies and directors, we tend to have this like, eh, you know, we tend to have a very commercial point of view. We've adopted the industry's perspective on them as fans and as commentators on film. So now, putting on my cynical Hollywood hat, (laughs) this French-Canadian Quebecer, his entire career is worth, at least out of these five films, a total of $16. And 25 cents, which means the average worth of his films, according to me, is $3.25. So I would sell you all five of these movies for three bucks and a quarter. (laughs) (laughs) That is eerily similar to mine because mine is $16.50 and averages out to (laughs) $3.30. Are there any other, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I want to say though, I really, I, I completely agree with your sentiments about the capitalist way of looking at a linear narrative. Like you're only as good as your, 
your last pro- your project, yeah. like whether you're a filmmaker, whether you're an author, whether you're a painter, whatever you are yeah. artistically. And I think it's a really beautiful and optimistic way of looking at it. Like, no, he is not a failure. He's a success because Pump Up the Volume is still remembered reverentially and empire records has such a huge yeah. following yep. too and so yeah so i think he is a success and he you know he had that one story to tell and he told it well so yeah kudos to him I, not everybody does not everybody does tell their one story well and not everybody gets a chance that's very true too yeah, so not few everybody people. takes that chance yep so few people take the chance or get the chance he took it yep. he got it and he he we can both say that we feel like he delivered at least in that one film so yes yep. yes yep Absolutely. well those are our thoughts on the films of alan moyle uh i guess we'll do a very brief recap coming in dead <laughs> last is weirdsville which it gave 75 cents to coming in number four is exchange which it gave a dollar to coming in number three is new waterford girl buck 50 but man what a miserable fucking movie <laughs> coming in number two in a not a good movie but in a separate tier a separate class of film is empire records which you give five bucks to and the very best the best work of his career so far is pump up the volume eight bucks um yeah so what's your recap I think it's the same, right? Just different it dollars. It is the same. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Weirdsville number five, I gave 25 cents to. Exchange number four, 75 cents. New Waterford Girl number three, $2.10. Empire Records is really in a different tier. I completely agree. Number That's my number two. It's $4.80. And far and away the best one. Number one, pump up the volume for $8.60. I want to thank Binge Lord Dan for sponsoring this episode. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, what I can definitively say is that nobody has talked for nearly three hours about Alan Moyle <laughs> <laughs> in the history of podcasting or probably any other medium. And for sure, nobody has ever talked for this length about these films. <laughs> and no one will ever do so again. I was lucky enough to be on Spoiler Piece on their Patreon. I think you guys have released that, right? On Patreon? Is that out there on your Patreon? We are you're on Patreon and you're on the regular show too. I'm on the regular show, yeah. And yeah. uh the Patreon's pretty wild. Uh well they're both pretty wild, but the Patreon's <laughs> real <both> wild. wild. <laughs> um so here's what I want you if you've never listened to Spoiler Piece, here's what you need to know. It's basically a movie review show that sounds like it should be on NPR. It sounds like it should be on NPR, but there's profanity in it. Oh, yes. And Megan is lively on the show. <laughs> so those are the differences. I do get fired up. Yeah, you get real fired up. <laughs> yeah. She, she, there are also musical tangents. Like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So imagine if, like, hey, I really like, I really like NPR. I really love NPR. It, but I, I wish that they said shit and fuck more. That's what <laughs> spoiler piece is there for you. Yeah, if you want to listen to a high quality movie podcast with Megan Kearns bringing energy like only she can and some really interesting perspective Aww. and takes, and go ahead and find spoiler piece. And uh, yeah, we'd love to have you on again, of course, for seven more oh, hours nice. of talking about movies no one's ever heard of from Quebec. <laughs> I'm in. You know I'm always in uh, for these long conversations. <laughs> <laughs> 
Seven hours. Let's do Let's it. Let's do it. All right. Well, it is currently 80 degrees in where I'm at. And you think I'm joking. Damn. It is amazing. 80 Whoa. degrees. So I am dying. I have to go. Thank you, Binge Lord Dan. <laughs> pin me, pay me. If you want to sponsor an episode, go to bingemovies.podbean.com. Hit the sponsor an episode button. Easier, better way to do it if you want to support us on a monthly basis, go to patreon.com slash binge movies. A lot of great stuff there. Continuously building it to make it better and better and better. So jump on now. We have all kind of different levels that you can support from from lower amounts of money to higher amounts of money. You get all kind of different benefits and entitlements up to and including a... Some movie live streams we're going to be doing, right? We're going to do almost like a live uh, commentary track with our patrons, assistant managers and above, watching some movies. First one we're, that's on the docket is 1987's Ted Pryor, David Pryor classic, Deadly Prey, which is a really shitty Rambo <laughs> knockoff <laughs> with a very greasy, very greasy guy. Uh, it's going to be wild. Cameron Mitchell's in it. So that ought to tell you the tier of the film. Cameron Mitchell and David Pryor. All right, until next time, binge on. Binge on.